to episode two of our new podcast, Britpop Movies of a Certain Age. And as we mentioned in episode one, we are moving back in time today to 1958 mm-hmm. and the, the 6-5 special. special. Yes, so as usual, we're going to start with a synopsis. Matthew. Okay, so... Anne and Judy, two young women from a nameless one-horse town, presumably somewhere up north, board the 6-5 special down to London with hopes of making it in showbiz. The train just so happens to contain the musical acts from the top-rated BBC TV show The 6-5 Special, all of whom are only too willing to perform for the girls. After conquering her nerves and auditions for the show's presenters, she is offered a slot on the show, successfully performs with heartthrob singer Dickie Valentine, and is asked... To return for a solo spot the following week. The end. Well, yes. I don't know whether that will be one of our shortest synopsis. I, I think actually it, think it probably won't. I don't know. Looking at some of the lists going down. <laughs> we'll but it yeah, it's wafer thin. It is that a wafer is thin, sure. yeah. So, your opinions, please. Did you enjoy it? Well, I did, yes. It's... It's not a film that will win awards for um, for direction, acting, um, depth of script, anything like that. But... As a snapshot of where British popular music was in 1958 and preserving an important TV show, a lot of which is no longer in the archives, as a memory of that, I think it's invaluable. And also it's entertaining. It's cheap and cheerful, but it is entertaining. What it lacks in depth, it more than makes up for in in entertainment value. Yeah. I mean, I think we come from a a point of view where we enjoy... uh, music and music history Mm. and as music historians absolutely it is a valuable resource and it's really good fun in terms of a movie if you were to play this to nearly everybody (laughs) i think the overall verdict would be it was pretty dreadful you know i mean it, it it hasn't aged particularly well but it is brilliant as a vignette mm Again, it's very 1958. Yep. The script is non-existent, which is a little bit surprising when you consider who wrote it. We we will come to that in a little bit. And it relies on the star turns within it to gain momentum. And the star turns within it vary really greatly in terms of their quality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For me, the biggest interest is... As a point in time, on handling pop music and pop culture for young people, how random it is and how they really haven't yet figured out how to do that properly. Mm, mm, They mm. haven't got a cohesive vehicle for youth. So you've got some bits which really work, where the artist is definitely in the proper zeitgeist. Mm. And then you've got some bits which are cringeworthy to yeah. the max. Yeah. you know, And you're just thinking, what the hell is going on here? <laughs> Why is this? I mean, is this really what the kids of the day wanted? <laughs> and you're almost 100% certain, no, it's no, not. No, but, no. They, but some of it, as we will come to, is what the kids of the day sort of accepted in some bizarre fashion. And I think it's really interesting from that point of view. I really enjoyed it. I really had fun. I laughed throughout. But a lot of the time laughing at the movie rather than with the the movie. And and then, for me, some passages of it, I just really enjoyed thoroughly. Mm. If you were to compare it to the first film we covered, The Young Mm. Ones, I mean, it's not half the film that The Young Ones is. So... 
Well, didn't even have half the budget. And you can tell. I mean, it's matchbox stuff. You know, back of a fag packet. Yeah. Uh, Knocked it, off in the morning, script, totally, isn't it? It's, totally. Uh, so, marks out of ten in terms of an overall movie. Well, I, I don't even know where to place it. It's definitely not a work of art. If you're listening to this because you like these type of movies or you're interested in these type of movies, which I assume you are, if you're listening to this, bit, mm. then I think you're going to enjoy this one. There are other movies in this series which have the same value in terms of production value, content of script, the way that they're laying out their show, which aren't half as entertaining as this one. Yes, quite right. Because this film was basically made quickly to capitalise mm. on the success of what is now seen as a hugely important show, mm. which was the Six Fire Special, yeah. which was unarguably the first teen pop-oriented yeah. show that had ever been done on British television. Yeah. And it was on the BBC. That and it was, was on the thing. BBC, That yeah. was the thing. Pretty much all the episodes of it are gone. I don't even know if there, there are... There, no, there uh, are clips. There's definitely clips because I've seen them. And some of the service stuff that was in them as well because, mm. of course, he used to have... Oh, yes, yeah, so about yeah, people... Um, mountain you know, hiking, hiking and, and, yeah, and have to do embroidery and, and things like that. Um, more like Blue Peter, really. It, it was, yeah. Mm. It was created because... There had been a thing on British television, a curious thing now to think about it, called the Toddler's Truce. That's right, yeah. 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 Basically, between 6 o'clock and 7 o'clock in the early 50s, mm. British television would stop. Yeah, so you could put, the, so kiddies you put the kids to bed. Yeah. But that was fine all the time the BBC was there, because it saved the BBC money, and the BBC was funded by the licence fee, it still is. It wasn't really any skin off their nose. In fact, they were quite grateful to be able to pause matters yeah, for, downtime, for an hour yeah. or so. However, in the meantime, commercial ITV had started in the mid-50s, and they started saying, hold on a minute, we're losing an hour of advertising revenue here. We, you, know, you might be right for you, BBC, but we're losing money. So eventually the government rescinded the Toddler's, toddler's Truce. Truce. Yeah. So Great they name. had to be... Great name. Yeah, it's a... <laughs> toddler's <laughs> Truce. I've got this impression of these kids at a standoff. They're dressed as cowboys or something and they slide their guns back into their holster and go, all right, well... Well, yeah. I think a lot of That's toddlers look a bit hour. like that anyway, aren't they? Yeah. <laughs> it's not yeah. uh, tried arguing with a toddler yeah. ever. Um, so the BBC, as well, all, both channels, but particularly the BBC, had to find something to plug the yeah. gap with. So one of the things I came up with was a show for teenagers, and that was the brainchild of a young producer, freshly out of the BBC training school, called Jack, Jack Good, Good. Yeah. who was very fiery, inventive personality, and he had definite ideas on what he wanted a show for teenagers and a pop show to be. Mm. He'd seen rock and roll and seen the excitement it generated, so he wanted to put this into practice, and so The End of the Toddler's Truce was his opportunity. opportunity. But of course, sadly for him, he only went a part of that way with the 6-5 special, so he wanted wall-to-wall music, yeah. and of course... They were looking at a very traditional magazine-style programme. Yes. He didn't want that. He wanted an open space which people would move around yeah. in. Follow. In fact, well, his, he did, did his format mm. was what really what shows like Top of the Pops became. In yeah. the thing, with this big open space, the crowd following around the artists as yes. they appeared on different staging yeah. around the room. And, he, and so he got his way with that. But, of course, they diluted his content. The BBC with, Public Service remit got in the way of it yeah. and it was a fairly low budget show yeah. so they couldn't afford to import American artists and we hadn't had many American artists no. up to this point there'd been a two-way musicians union band between mm. British artists going over to America and American artists coming over here that had only just been lifted yeah. so it wasn't a common thing 
And also, there wasn't that many homegrown rock and roll no, turns weren't. at that point. Well, I think it's important to state at this point that this was really a skiffle-based show. It was, yeah. I mean, the, 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 theme, the theme tune... Uh, yeah, is uh, a skiffle song. Was a skiffle or song. Or done in a skiffle style, yeah, anyway. absolutely. And so they were putting together what acts they could muster. So yeah. a lot of it was skiffle. In fact, there wasn't even much of that in the early days. I believe the very first show is mostly sort of quite middle-of-the-road acts. It's only the King Brothers who we see in this film that were the closest thing to rock and roll on the very first... Um, the very first Don audition. Lang was there as well. Uh, yeah, he would have been uh, there. So Don Lang uh, was had adapted his. Yeah, he was a sort of swing. We'll come to him later, yeah. but but yeah, he so moved into sort of rock. I suppose Do- Don Lang, uh, John Barry, yeah, uh, <laughs> and the King brothers yeah. were, were sort of accounting for the the rock and roll sensibilities yeah, on this particular in the, show. In the very first one, it wasn't until about four weeks in that you actually got um, Tommy Steele. Tommy Steele, yeah. So yeah. I suppose Tommy Steele was the biggest name in rock and roll that appeared on the Six Five yeah, Special. It was about a month before he even appeared on it. Yeah, and it did indeed include magazine style items, sort of educational and wholesome things for yeah. young people to be into, like orienteering and yeah. <laughs> and striding across, which completely and... ruined the flow of what Jack Good was trying to do. Yes. Uh, there's no, I don't think there's any question of that. No. And, of course, he left the show well, in 58. I've read in one article that he was expecting his contract to be renewed, even though he wasn't happy with the format of the show. He was yeah. expecting his contract to be renewed, and it wasn't by the BBC. <laughs> They'd had enough right. of him by that point already. Yeah. Because he is glimpsed in the show. That's the interesting thing about this. He is glimpsed in the show up in the control gallery. Yeah. He's the guy in the glasses... And you can tell it's him because he's wearing a monogram cardigan with JG on it. Uh, and, uh, and that's him. And you see him queuing some bands in. But he's not credited because I think it must have been made late 57, early 58. And he was out of the show by about February 58, despite the fact that it was his the show. Was yeah, because, baby. I mean, actually, this film comes out very late in Six Five Special's lifespan, yeah. which was a short lifespan anyway. Yeah. And Six Five Special's gone by the end of 58. Yeah, it has. And of course it's gone because of Jack Good. Good, yeah. Because he starts Oh Boy Yeah, he does ITV, later in 58. He moves to ITV. And that really delivers his vision. So yeah. in that show, there's none of the public service stuff. It's no. all high octane. And, and it's also, it moves away from Skiffle, really, and yeah. into... It's just it's proper rock and roll, roll. And, it, and it features Cliff Richard, Cliff Richard Marty Wilde, Wild, uh, Billy Fury. Billy, yeah, all, all the real up and coming, all the real proper British rock and rollers now start to come through. I mean, they still had a lot of content which we would look at now as being mm-hmm. a yeah. bit odd. Mm-hmm. But with the inclusion of Cliff and Marty Wilde and Billy Fury, you've got the real proper edgy. I know it's weird to think of. We discussed it before. Cliff, Cliff is edgy, edgy but, but at that point, Cliff certainly was. Yes. And the way he shot in, mm-hmm. in Oh Boy and the deep focus yeah. of it and the contrast, he really had something in, in his early days. And yeah. also the, there was a pace to Oh Boy. They didn't let any artist sing for more than a minute. It was just bang, bang, bang and on Well, to the funnily next. enough, the US saw Oh Boy over here yeah. and thought, wow, that's a great... But they didn't have anything as good as that no. for, for their teenagers. And they actually imported Jack Good after yeah, they that. coached him, yeah. To come and do Shindig. Shindig. So he was the god of American... Yeah, teen TV as well as British teen TV, yeah. and uh, the BBC when Oh Boy absolutely smashed Six Five Special out of the water, mm. they cut it. Yeah, and didn't do any replacement till well, the mid sixties. They sort of let it die because uh, yeah. the, the two presenters it will come to Pete, Pete Murray, Murray and Joe Douglas. Yeah, and Joe Douglas actually co-produced yes, the show with did. Jack and Bird. the movie. Yeah, and the movie. Yeah, that's right. But she and Pete Murray are both gone by the end of the year and I think mm. Jim Dale 
took over as the full time yeah, presenter yeah. Yeah. towards the end. Yeah. It didn't last much longer after no. after Jack Good went. So when the show was at its hottest, mm. a film was made to cash in and make the most of it. Yeah. They didn't have Tommy Steele. No. Uh, but it had most of the regular stars that appeared on yes. the Six Five special. And it shows you what a mixed bag it was. And in fact, there's little or no actual rock and roll in it no, as such. There's Lonnie Donegan and his skiffle yeah. at the end. The 6'5 uh, jive is played by the King Brothers, which yeah. is somewhere near rock and roll, but you wouldn't say it was really proper rock and roll. No. It's very tame. Yeah, and there's Don, Don Lang, who does his, his um, Bill Haley type. Yeah, yeah quite a good band. Yeah, yeah, yeah They're good, obviously yeah. good musicians. Oh, absolutely, uh, absolutely. And Don Lang performs with great enthusiasm, but he certainly looks more in the Haley mould himself. He's a <laughs> yeah. heavy chap. He's a heavy set bloke. Um, and he's definitely <laughs> not got the sex appeal that I suppose when we're talking about Cliff and Billy Fury in particular, those two had that raw sex appeal to a female audience that nobody in the 6-5 special really has. Jim no. Dale could have had it, but he didn't perform in that sort of yeah. way. He's not framed like the Cliffs and, no, your, he, and your Billy Furies in Oh Boy no. were. Cliff was just as clean cut as Jim Dale in mm. reality. Yeah, yeah. But Jim Dale presents himself as clean cut in this. Mm. So he, he's the only one you could see there with a smolder about him. Apart from the other guy in this with sex appeal for the female audience was Dickie Valentine. But yes. he is old school. Musically, he comes from a different Yeah, we'll come to that later we'll, on we'll, when we'll we we'll cover each other. Uh, person. Yeah. But you looking at it, part of the rock and roll thing really is danger. Mm. And part of rock and roll is sex. Yeah. Um, and really, there's very little of that going on. And the, the only two that I can think of off the top of my head in, the, in this film that had it, Jim Dale and Dickie Valentine were both not rock and roll for various no, reasons. No, yeah. indeed. Because it was directed by Alfred Shaughnessy, mm. who only made a handful of films as a director. He mm. was a writer first and foremost, yeah. and did a lot of stuff for television. Most famously, Upstairs, Downstairs, mm. where he was the script editor, yeah. or what we would now refer to as the showrunner. Spent many years on that, and that was his biggest success. He also he, did um, Sherlock Holmes. He did. He did a very yeah. good one called uh, The Crooked Man, which I vividly yeah, remember brilliant. when it was first on. This is the yeah. Jeremy Brett. Yeah, uh, the v, for me, the definitive. Absolutely. Whole other subject you could open up with. Yeah. Me. I mean, I'm a massive uh, <laughs> fan of that Granada series of Sherlock Holmes, yes. Jeremy Brett, with his portrayal, which I think is the best yes. Sherlock Holmes going. And there were some superb writers on that show. And as as you say, Alfred Shaughnessy was one of those, wasn't yeah. he? But it's one of those lovely tales of intrigue in the yeah, past. Yeah, 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 then, yeah. Isn't it? But the framing bit is yeah, set yeah. in Aldershot, which is my hometown. So, uh, yeah. He also so did The Saint. Yes. Uh, All Creatures Great and Small. Yeah. Irish RM. Yeah. Various things. Had an illustrious... Yeah. As a writer TV in television. career. As a writer. From a directorial point of view there it, you could sleepwalk this one yeah. i mean and there's some things that just aren't very well framed or, or edited yeah. i mean like when jim dale shows up you yeah. see him walk in yeah. what they should have done is have her talking about him and then you hear his voice and then you see him and they should frame him in such a way that he sort of glows out the screen it's not you yeah. just see him one yeah in, it's, you know, it is it's in, apologetic in yeah it's not and it's what it of, should have been is her face tells you that jim dale's in shot yeah. and then he appears and Again, it's all to do with framing someone, giving them a hero shot. Yeah. 
you know, really, Jim Dale, they should have made more of that. The lighting was crude. Yeah. The, when we did the young ones in the last one, we were singing the praises of Slocum and, his, yeah, and the, the Slocum, way he yeah. lit the shot. There's nothing like that yeah. here. And yeah. he does, he wanders into shot and yeah. stands awkwardly <laughs> on screen. This yeah. is, in fact, um, Jim Dale's first ever movie. Is that right? Yeah. Well, I yeah, know. So, well, I know. We'll, we'll talk a bit about him in a minute. Because the, the director of photography was a bloke called Leo Rogers. Right. Who did a lot of British B-movies. He was camera operator. He wasn't actually director of photography on that many mm. movies. This was one of his first and he didn't do too many more. Don't yeah, well, I... The only film of his that I'm aware of is a very schlocky film called Fiend Without a Face. It sounds it's like very, a real it's one, the, it's sort of one of these yeah. atom age kitsch things yeah. about a radiation monster that manifests itself as human brains and spinal columns. That, that's the, one that's the, passed the, me by. The I, I, about, I, I, yeah. I've well, you'd hope that human brains would pass you by yeah, because yeah. they're pretty, pretty scary stuff. But yeah, there's, it sounds it's, like it's, human it's, brains passed everyone by on yeah. that particular project. I yeah. think they deserve to. But it's a classic example of sort of atom age kitsch. It's set in America, but it's made in Britain. And that's the only film of his that I'm really aware of. So he's very much not in the mm. Doug Slocum category, sadly. So you mentioned earlier that it's surprising that the script is so thin on the ground. And the reason for that is because Norman Hewis was the writer. Yeah, a writer with a great reputation and mm. most famous these days for writing the first few Carry On films, about the first half dozen yes, he did. Carry On films, um, which were also produced by Anglo Amalgamated, who did mm. this. And he had form as well with pop and roll movies with the Tommy, Tommy Steele. Yeah. And then later the Duke Ward Jeans, which was the same year as this. Mm. It strikes me like he was rushed into into writing it and had to conform to the format of the film which was to cram in as many musical acts as he could yes he's massively constrained by that they've got to fit so much into mm. a movie you can tell they don't want to be over long Hudis is quite early in his career so he, he's not had the successes with the carry on movies that no. starts this year with carry on sergeant mm. So I think at this point he's still earning his stripes. Yeah. He's done the Tommy Steele story and then he, he did really well with that. That's got a little bit more flow to it than this. Mm. I think this one, there's only a few dramatic moments. There's maybe the opening sequence where there's a bit of wordplay. Yeah. There's the bit with Finley Curry on yes. the train yeah. where there's a bit of development. Well, there's, and there's a few nice lines like, yeah, you've eaten the steak, now we talk turkey. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. <laughs> which is getting that quick one-liner and, and that's the way, bit at the beginning where Judy describes it as a one-horse town where even the horse wears blinkers, yeah. which is... Um, yeah, he's got... Nice there thing. are a few gags in it which are Norman Hudis-worthy. Yes. But I think it must have been difficult in the respect that there were no real characters to develop through. When you're a writer, you want to develop character through mm. a piece, and there wasn't really very much from... He had two girls to work with there, and I don't know how confident he would have been writing for mm. women at this point and also they were young women so he's obviously going to have the brief of bar, trying to, get to keep them within within their briefs yeah well, um, or not or yeah, that's not. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure it's the other dramatic section dramatic with Mike and Bernie Winters he probably didn't have an awful lot to do with that because I imagine they were doing a lot of their what was yeah. probably their stage routine that was a pre-existing routine yeah what, I don't but... know yeah Norman Judas as was a writer with a very good career. After that, he started out, as so many people did, actually, at this time. Mm. He was a journalist during the war mm. and wrote for the camp entertainment concerts. Yes. There were an awful lot of performers that came out at this time who cut their teeth in the shows for the soldiers. Particularly, I mean, the goons 
Yeah. All came up through that. Stanley Baxter, Kenneth yeah. Williams, oh, all absolutely. of those guys. Yeah, lots yeah. of the carry-on people came through there. Mm. And a great many people who weren't really considering a career in show business got the bug when yeah, they were yeah. working and there. Performing, and, yeah, performing during the war. So Hudis was picked up by Pinewood Studios after that. Okay. And he didn't really succeed there. He the, virtually nothing. But he, the one script of his, and I don't know, I can't think what one, one it was, did okay. And it was from there that he was signed to do the Tommy Steele story. Oh, okay. So he he that the Tommy Steele story was probably a pivotable, a pivotable, pivotal. Oh, you can pivot on that, lad. Uh, uh, a pivotal movie for him. Yes. Uh, to to push him in, and then of course. He gets in with Gerald Thomas and mm. Peter Rogers. Because they did the Tommy Steele story, didn't yeah, they? Yeah, yeah. That was his, his in to them. So yeah. uh, as soon as he was in with them, they really kept him in employment for the next few years and established yeah. his... Well, he established his reputation, but they were a big step up yeah, to establish absolutely. his reputation. He also did um, an, one of the nearly carry-ons twice around the daffodils oh yes which is a really fine film actually it's a hospital one isn't it yeah it's like carry-on nurse 2 only it's slightly less broad comedy Mm. and a little bit more sort of touching melodrama or drama you know so it's yeah i'm not saying it's it's a heavyweight work but it's a nice film and it's a film in which Kenneth Williams in particular Mm. gives a much more measured and considered performance yes and it's got a lot of Hudis at his best. He had a good feel for personality, for character, for pathos. Mm. And after the first six movies, they opted for Talbot Rothwell. Yes. And his style was much broader. It's a lot of wordplay and Dublantandra, lots and lots of puns. Yeah. And really what Carry On became better known for. But there are many, many people who love the early Hudis yes. ones. So a lot more sort of those out they? as yeah. the definitive well, carry-ons. Personally, I like the mid-period. So yeah. Talbot Rothwell's early stuff, mm. I think, is really the, the peak of carry-ons for me. So. But that's, uh, again, yet another <laughs> series uh, of podcasts. Yeah. But Hudis moved over to America. Yes. And he got a lot of work in television. Man from Uncle. Yeah, yeah, he wrote for that. I was surprised. Hawaii Five O. Yeah, that's right. Chips, <laughs> chips, chips. From I that. But Rogers, chips. Oh, but Rogers in the twenty fifth yeah. century. Wilma Deering. Although I think it was the crap second series yeah. of But Rogers, not the um, the good first one. Yeah, um, yeah. But it still had Wilma Deering in it, so I don't mind. Um, well, quite but, so. So yeah, good career. Good career he had. Yeah, uh, Norman Hoodis. Yeah, uh, I think a respected figure in British screenwriting. Yeah, yeah. this has got the most enormous cast list in it of performance because <laughs> it was just a procession of set piece to set piece. I say set piece. Musical number to musical number. Uh, there's the, the set piece sort of suggests there was elements of staging about it when really... Well, we'll come. There were some. There's a little but, bit, but we're yeah. largely just looking yeah. at it. <laughs> so, yeah. so I think the best thing is let's go through it chronologically. Yeah. Uh, through so the we movie. Go, back, so go, go back to bath time, shall we? Yeah, we'll so it starts actually... In a very unexpected fashion, which it never follows through. I mean, it's apropos of absolutely nothing. It starts with what must, in 1958, have been a very sexy scene. Yeah, I think so. With a young woman in a bubble bath, obviously naked, singing to herself while her friend looks on, her female friend looks on from the other room. With the door ajar in their one-room Flat, and her lovely. her friend isn't wearing much more. No, and that one well, wears considerably less by the end of the yeah. scene because she yeah. gets they they're obviously being economical and sharing the bathwater. Yeah, but yeah, so it's it's a rather surprisingly racy 
scenes yeah, that, I, would say. that I wasn't expecting. I mean, yeah. very tame by today's standards, but uh, but it, yeah, it made me raise an eyebrow. So the two protagonists in yeah. that will come to. So we mentioned briefly Diane Todd. Diane Todd, yeah, a Scottish-born soprano mm. who was originally billed as the new Dina Durbin. Yeah, yeah. And Dina Durbin was a Canadian soprano who had worked with Judy Garland, yeah. but had retired quite young. But Diane Todd had come down to London at the age of 10 because her father was a musician and worked a lot on the BBC mm. himself. And she, this is a name that will be coming up a few times. She was one of Carol Levis's discoveries. And Carol yeah. Levis was sort of the, if not the Simon Cowell, he was sort of the Huey Green of his day. And he, uh, he was a Canadian talent scout and impresario. Yeah. Uh, who had a long-running radio and then TV talent show. And she came up through him. Most people will be unfamiliar with uh, Diane Todd's singing stuff. She was actually taught by Harold Miller, oh, yes. who was the voice coach for Julie Andrews oh, and right? for Shirley Bassey. OK. So he so produced a couple of good singers. You yeah, know. yeah. Um, well, Diane but, Todd is very skillful, clearly. Is. Yeah, I mean, she's a fine surprise. I and mean, she went on to have a really, really good stage career she had a long run in my fair lady that's right the original broadway production yeah she was in. um and she was in guys and dolls kiss yes. me kate stop the world i want to get yeah. off with the, for the tony newley yeah. show and that was all mm. in south africa because mm. she married a south african diamond heir. yeah which uh which well well done her that's yeah. what i say and she um, and she moved to south africa and appeared in those productions in, yeah. in south africa but it just goes to show i think how confused this rock and roll scene was because yeah. She is not of that style at all. She, her singing style no. is a stage singing style. Yeah. It's a style that was very much fixed in the 1930s, 1940s, yeah. and was already starting to sound dated in the 1950s. Yes, absolutely. Really. I mean, because her style is much less clean-cut, say, than Julie Andrews, yeah. who was probably the peak show singer yeah. of the 50s the doyen of broadway and of the west end here mm. and even other singers who who performed stage shows she, her style is very old-fashioned mm. she's got a big quasi-operatic tone yeah, to it, her it's voice. almost sort of light classical isn't it it's and the... she to to a modern eye she looks like your gran she, she, she was only about 19 or 20 when she yeah. made this film. I mean, she, she does look young, don't get me wrong, but she has the bearing and the facial expressions. Well, and the, know, the, I find, actually, that I find the scene where she's auditioning for the two presenters, mm. I find that quite creepy, the way she's framed and the way she's sort of just sort of like wandering towards them with her arms out like that and right. sort of the sort of glazed look on her face. It's not something like a horror film. Yeah. It's not a ghost coming towards you. You could definitely do the, horror, the Diane Todd horror remix. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You could use that in... in the Shining or something. Yeah, is a really it's, quite, it's definitely got that feel to yeah, it, hasn't it? It's, yeah, no, it's I, know what I find it quite unsettling that bit, actually. Yeah, I mean, none of her numbers did anything for me. No, I mean, was... I, I fell off my seat when they were going. I just wanted them to end. Because, yeah. uh, I mean, at the time, they must have seemed old-fashioned. Today, yeah, I it, think so. it seems like it's come from another planet. Yeah, it's I, like, I, it doesn't even connect. I would imagine that the kids of the day even were going, oh, God, what, you know, was it? Yeah. I mean, this sounds terrible, because Diane Todd was clearly a fine artist. Yeah, and had a good so, career. Uh, I've got... You, she had a good career, fine artist. She... There's nothing wrong with her performance as far as it goes in this. Uh, she delivers her lines okay. Mm. Not not with any exceptional quality. Yeah, and certainly um, she's the weaker of the two actresses. Absolutely. In, I was, was going to come on to that. In yeah, terms yeah. of her delivery... Uh, 
Avril Leslie has has quite a lot of charisma. She does, uh, and she's got this. quite a nice little bit of comic timing. Some of her facial expressions and what what she's got to work with, yeah, which isn't a lot. So I think she did was quite nice, and she's yeah. clearly a more comfortable actress than Diane Todd, who's fine, but she's clearly just slightly more cosy yeah. with the, with the, the acting. Because Diane Todd moved to South Africa, Avril Leslie comes from South Africa. Yeah. She that's where she was. She's from. I was looking up about her. I don't know a lot about her. Fifty eight appears to be a peak year. Mm. She did quite a lot with her later that same year. She showed up in Revenge of Frankenstein. Yeah, which was the first sequel in their their Hammer series. She plays a, well, it's not strictly a monster in Revenge of Frankenstein, but she's a victim of... uh, Didn't she she do a couple of Hammers? That's the only one I could find, but it's certainly the only one I've seen. And she's fine in that, but it's a tiny role. Mm. And she doesn't appear to have sustained a career after about 1960, which is a shame because she seems to... I thought thought her performance in this was one of the most charming of the performances in it. I thought she was... batted it along quite nicely mm. she certainly seemed more natural than diane todd yeah who as you say has a strange glazed quality throughout so diane todd sings two songs doesn't she and she then does. sings with the dickie valentine number she's she a featured a... backing vocalist yeah so she has like a couple of lines in that doesn't she but yeah none of them are my cup of tea no not at all not at all and she's meant to be our contact point in the yeah. in the film isn't it she's meant to be the one that we're going along with yeah. identifying with and yet yeah. she's doing and they're obviously trying to get a lot of teenagers in to watch the movie yeah and seeing this really old-fashioned really old-fashioned music. in the movie there's there's plenty of what I would call lightweight pop songs mm. that could have been given to her to do, but I guess that was just so, so not her style. So that begs the question: Why didn't they find a light pop? I was just about style. to say it should have been somebody like Alma Cogan, yeah, absolutely, um, or in that vein, you know, yeah. and that material that would totally. have been fine. That would have been yeah. fine. I, I couldn't agree more. Alma Cogan would have been absolutely great. Whether yeah. she was too established, she would have been too established. Yeah, I, I would think. say because it's a bit like sort of. Well, Petula Clark is in this film. She was too established. Alma Cogan would probably have been too established. Yeah, Helen Shapiro wouldn't have hit yet. No, so they couldn't still be at school. Yeah, So maybe they just didn't have someone that, that was a newcomer. They must have done. They must. There must have been someone just arriving on the pop mm-hmm. scene at that time. At that and was, that would have been a much better there fit. O- there was obviously some connection i think a lot of these artists were managed by the same person yeah i yeah, believe i think there was yeah. a there's a common manager i bet it was something like that behind yeah. the scenes i bet it was a management thing so once they towed themselves down and decided to head with very little preparation to go straight down to london yeah on the thinnest of premises is, Th- yes. uh, is they jump aboard said train yeah a six five special and in short order run into jim dale who's in the next compartment they do yeah, yeah who wanders in because they start playing one of his songs, Sugar Time. Sugar Time, Sugar yeah. in the morning, Sugar yeah. in the evening, Sugar. In which, the is one, which is one of his hits that was produced for him by George Martin. Well, all his pop, yeah, all his pop hits were produced by George Martin. So it would have been one of George Martin's earliest and yeah. rare successes with a pop artist as yeah. opposed to comedy artist. Because he really wanted George Martin, really wanted. Yeah, you know, a pop artist to to move away rival from, Paramore, from yeah. like like Noe Paramore, who was his rival label head uh, for Columbia. We spoke about him last time. Yeah, we he, did. he was very jealous of Noe Paramore's stable of pop artists, particularly. Yeah. He was still smarting because he'd let a major star slip through his fingers. Because a few months before he signed Jim Dale, he'd been down the Two Eyes coffee bar, the famous Two Eyes coffee yeah, bar, yeah. Uh, to scout for talent, and yeah. he'd seen a blonde-haired Cockney singer backed by the Skiffle Group. Yeah, yeah. And the the singer's name was Tom Hicks. And yeah. the, the skiffle band was the Vipers. Yeah. And although Hicks had some charisma and and a cheeky face and everything like that, he 
wasn't impressed with his singing ability or his guitar playing, but he enjoyed the Vipers. So he mm. signed them, and they had one of the key skiffle acts with uh, songs with um, Don't You Want Me Daddy-O. Yeah, which was the song yeah. that all the skiffle, just about every single band there for for the next few years while Skiffle lasted, played that song. Don't you want me daddy? Absolutely. It was an adaptation of a, of a sea shanty. Anyway, so he signed them and had some success, but then Tom Hicks is picked up by Dick Rowe of Decca Records, yeah, and changes his name to Tommy, Tommy Steele, Steel. and becomes our first yeah. uh, I mean, rock and roll star. I mean, George he Martin was, was, was right in his guitar playing, but he, he was wrong in every other aspect. You know, Tommy Steele became one of the big entertainers of his day and certainly one of the British biggest British entertainers of all time yeah yeah and for better or worse our first rock and roll star yeah as and, as I think we mentioned in our episode zero not the best British rock and roller by a long no. chalk either in the material he was singing or in his delivery but yeah still I, I, the first I, still the first and still working still mm. still a big star now. oh I, and with that a brilliant song and dance man, brilliant yeah. stage performer, fine, fine, performer. really charismatic performer, brilliant Tommy Steele. Yeah. yeah, and um, so George Martin, having literally yeah. had Tommy Steele under his nose, was looking for a similar artist mm. and thought he found it with Jim Dale. Yeah, um, and they did indeed have a couple of big hits. Well, Jim Jim Dale had a, a number two with "Be My Girl." Yep, which was I think one of his early, if not his first release with 57 George or something, Martin Fifty Seven. Yeah. So it's just prior to this, and then they had three or four more top 30 hits but none no no more at that sort of level yeah. and jim dale's interest as a pop singer i think yeah. wayne well, i think his manager i think jim dale's manager could see his potential yeah, and wanted a, to move him away from being simply well, a jim, pop star. jim dale interestingly started as a comedian when yes. he first started jim dale began on the comedy circuit at the age of 17 he was the yeah. youngest professional comedian in britain yeah in those days, of course, comedians did a turn where they'd sing a song and do various things. Yeah, so yeah. Jim Dale's music was spotted. And, of course, he had the willowy good looks. Yeah. So he was thrust into early pop stardom, had a crack at that, went on to 6-5 special on the back of that and yeah. was seen as this personable, yeah. clean-cut, yeah, all-rounder. He performed on the show and then, uh, as we just said, became the full-time presenter of it in its latter phase. Yeah, briefly. And then, of course... This was his first movie, but he mm. then starts to appear increasingly in films. And he's our next carry-on connection. Because yeah. in this country, he would certainly be best known for the 11 Easily, yeah. carry-on performances. And there was another one, of course, in The Big Job, which was... Yeah. We mentioned twice around The Daffodils. The Big Job was a pretty An much a carry-on film. Another almost carry-on. Almost carry-on. made by the same people with yeah. most, of the, most of the regular cast. Another Gerald it. Thomas... Yeah, Peter, Peter Rogers, Rogers production mm. in 1964. Why it wasn't Carry On Heist it's or something. It's not quite broad enough. Yeah, I suppose it's, not. It's, it's a little bit, uh, only fractionally more subtle. Yeah, feature, than, than... interestingly enough, features uh, Dick Emery. It does, yeah. And Lance Percival. Yeah, they're both in it. Yeah. Uh, but Joan and, Sims. Yeah, and Sylvia Sims. Sylvia Sims. No relation. Yeah. Uh, and of course, Sid James. Yeah, wonderful. Great performance there. So he was in that, but he started in the Carry On films. He was the expectant father in Carry On Cabbie was his yeah, first was appearance his first one, in yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. And then he goes uh, a very comedic role in Carry On Jack. 
yep. where he's he's in the sedan chair. He's put in the sedan <laughs> chair with his dad, who's you know an ancient, the ancient <laughs> mariner. Bernard Cribbins, who's in the sedan chair, who he's carrying yeah. around. Cribbins ends up having to get out and carry it with Jim. Dale, you know, so it's a nice little role, and it I obviously that for years. it obviously showed uh, that Jim Dale had that comedic timing, which really became his trademark yeah. in the carry-on. I mean, it's a real good quality to have, to, to have his sort of looks and charm mm. and excellent comic ability. Yeah. I mean, he's a person for whom the term multi-talented would have been, uh, should have he been coined. He was such a good all-rounder. Um, in the carry-ons, he, he then has Cleo mm. screaming and a cowboy, real peak yeah. ones as well as the doctor ones which he's yeah. extremely carry on well again doctor for. carry on again doctor with the big stunt going because yeah, he did yeah. all, all his own stunts that's right he broke his arm I think. yeah he did, did, did yeah doing that, was doing he? going down the stairs in that trolley was uh, was a big one for him yeah. but he was also a songwriter yeah uh, he was oscar nominated for his lyrics of uh, georgie, georgie girl. girl georgie girl, which he wrote with tom springfield yeah and he um, wrote dicker dum dum which was a hit for uh Des, Des O'Connor. Is that right? Yeah, oh. dicker dum dum, dicker dum dum. Yeah, uh, so that was a hit in the late 60s for Struck him. Struck me dumb. Yeah, <laughs> so he was a songwriter. And in 1970, Laurence Olivier, no less, asked him to come and join the National Theatre, which yeah. was just started then and was a big, big thing. Yeah. Serious drama. And this was something that Jim Dale just could not refuse. You know, Sir Laurence Olivier... Ask you to become part of the National Theatre. Yeah. What an honour! Yeah. And he did so, and very successfully. And so we did Shakespeare part... together. Didn't so he was there for a few years, and it was that that put an end to his carry on. He just couldn't do that and do carry on with the carry on commitment. Yeah. So and I know that that caused big ructions in carry on because mm. they never certain members, Kenneth Williams, clique never forgave him for that. Yes. But that was really because Kenneth Williams and a great number of the cast were really hurt by it they yeah. they knew in in jim dale they had the perfect leading yeah. man because he could do the funny as well as do the romantic lead and they knew that he would be incredibly hard to replace and yeah. really they, they never they never, they never really people like him. julian holloway yeah who never around, they, they don't have the same i mean he's no. good julian holloway but he's not the same personality he was nowhere near as good the only strangely the only one i thought was good replacement was roy castle who yeah did the one carrying up the kyber yeah and i thought did pretty well but they never repeated it no it's, it's funny that isn't yeah. it I, I presume his career was going in different places again roy castle was completely different to jim dale but he very much feels that but he filled that, that part quite yeah. well i thought but they never really replaced him and then of course he cast his eye on the united states and yeah. became Probably bigger, again, in the States than he was in the UK. Yeah. He was a massive success on Broadway with shows like Barnum. Yeah. He won some Tonys, I think. He won yeah. two Tonys. Yeah, because he created the role of Barnum in the He created Barnum. There yeah, was the first person to play that. Nice. Joe Egg, Me and My Girl, Candide. Yeah. Quite a lot of things. He was also in the Spike Milligan That's movie. right. He's in Adolf Hitler, My Partner's mm. Downfall, playing the young Spike Milligan in the, in the movie of that. And, of course... The famous Digby, the biggest dog in the world. Yeah, he's in that as Pete's well. Pete's Dragon. Pete's Dragon, Disney. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, of course, he's now very much known as the voice of Harry Potter books in That's the right. States. Because in Britain, it's Stephen Fry does the right. audio books. And in America, it's it's Jim Dale. Yep. Um, so he's still doing that. He's, he's won he's awards still, for that as well. Yeah. So. so he's still at the top of his game now. He's in his 80s. He's a, he did um, a one-man show. One-man show a couple mm. of two or three years ago. And he came over and did some telly publicising it. Mm. And it 
nearly blew me down. He looks almost the same. Yeah. Apart from his silver hair, he looks yeah, almost he looks identical. really good. Really Just well Jim Dale, I think it was called him. I was gutted, actually. I, I didn't get to see it. Oh, it was a, a show I really wanted to yeah. go and see. Didn't get, didn't get the chance to go and yeah, see it. Apparently it's very good. Yeah. Just reminiscing. And, of course, he's a raconteur, so... Yeah. To hear his reminiscences would be great, mm. but I, I'm a fine, fine performer, a sort of uh, national treasure that's gone a bit under the wire for yeah. me. It's sort of a slightly similar career to Anthony Newley, yeah, uh, mm. but I think he sustained it. Um, it's Anthony Newley without the controversy. Yes, that's a good way. Of yeah, it's Anthony Newley. It. It's Anthony Newley in that he was big pop star in Britain mm. briefly. Yeah. Briefer than Newley, actually. Yeah. Newley's pop career was more substantial. Yeah. Um, but he was a big pop star, then did films here, did theatre here, yeah. and was a big star. At the height of his fame, everybody in Britain would have known, yeah, we yeah. know who Jim Dale is. Yeah. Then went to the States, where he became very big over there, but Britain forgot about yeah. him. Yeah. And now, in Britain, if you don't know the Carry On movies, you probably don't know Jim Dale. No. Sadly. I guess so. I guess so. Which is but a big luckily, But luckily... A lot of people do. Yeah, he did still, the National Health as well, the, the movie The National Health in the oh, early 70s here, yes, which I've was a, a moderate hit yeah, for them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, again, a good Yeah, but a great part. performer and, and very interesting to see him here at the very beginning of his, of his career. Yeah, and in this, going back to this particular film, he does one of the better turns in it. Yeah, oh, well. absolutely. And he's definitely got good, the way he delivers his lines and, and the way he does the best with, with what yeah. he's got. And performs with reasonable aplomb without... Yeah. Being a proper rock and roller, I would say. So, and it's got it's brilliant because it's got the the girls doing what so many people in all these musicals have to do, and that is find expressions and things to do with themselves was, while watching pop star with, uh, with dreamy eyes. You know, as Jim Dale. So right. it's clear he's, he can play the guitar a bit because he's getting the chord shapes right. But I'm sure he wasn't playing the solo. Wouldn't surprise me if that was done by there was a chap called Ernie Shear mm. who was doing a lot of sessions in Britain around that time. He did the lead guitar move it because yeah, that was recorded before movie. Hank Marvin yeah, um, joined up with Cliff yeah. and he also did Do You Mind the famous Tony lead guitar with, yeah. with Tony yeah. Newley there it, the work is very similar to his but we can't say no, with I, any I, I, I surety don't. there if you do know who played the guitar in the solo for The Train Kept Rolling for Jim, Jim Dale. Dale. First of all, get out. It's beautiful weather outside just at the moment. Please do see some it's of that. It's fresh air, have a yeah. walk. Uh, but if you do know, then by all means, give us a shout and we'll put it on the notes here or send us a comment, uh, anything we'd, we'd yeah. love to hear from that. But it could have been Ernie Shear. Yeah. But the song itself was originally originally uh, for a guy called Tiny Bradshaw, who was yep. one of the, the songwriters on it. And he did a jump jive version in 51 yep. of this particular song. And it's clearly after that sort of arrangement, the call and response in the chorus and the, the general groove that Jim Dale's version is in this movie. Yeah. I know that Johnny Burnett did a brilliant uh, rockabilly Yes, version of it, That's right. and it, I'm sure it was that that would have inspired later artists because it was quite yeah, well yeah. covered after that. Yeah, because Johnny Burnett was a very influential mm. rocker, and um, he does uh, it. His American version rocker. is very much grittier, and it turns the time signature as well. It stops you being know, that swing, swing thing, and it takes a swing out and more rock. Yeah, and then famously, it was reinterpreted by the Yardbirds, who did a version mm -hmm. of it. Uh, they they called it "Stroll On" and performed in the film "Blow Up." They which, did. which we might be having a look at in a little bit. I think they may have done two versions of it. Possibly. Because Aerosmith went on to do a version that's very close to the Yardbirds 
version. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah uh, weird, weird to see that as a real homage to that, actually, yeah. from Aerosmith. Because I, I didn't realise, because I'm familiar with the Aerosmith yeah. version, and I didn't notice until recently that it was the same song. I know they're both no. trying to kept a rolling, but the arrangements are so different. I was aware of the Aerosmith version and mm. the Yardbirds version, but like you, when I heard Jim Dale singing this, it didn't compute that this was the same song because it, it sounds so different. Yeah. And then, of course, when you listen back to the Tiny Bradshaw version, which I really like, by yeah, the way. Nice, I, I love nice that. Version. I love his vocals on it. You know, I prefer it to the Jim Dale one. You can see the, the progression as they go yeah. through. They're all worth listening to, folks. Yeah, Have a listen to all of those versions of this song. R&B standard, I think we call yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah, he, he does it well. And yeah, does. That's the last we see of him in the movie. But he makes his appearance and he, he does very well, like I say, in the earlier days of, of what became a glittery Very career. much so, yeah. So that was Jim Dale. So from there we move on. They go to the next compartment. To a period piece. Yeah, the Kentones. The cardigan-clad Kentones. Ah. So they're singing a moderately well-known standard, actually, mm. Gypsy in My Soul. Yeah. It's very much of that swing band yeah. style. Another song and band that, that has its roots very much in the pre-rock the, and roll past. They're a Glenn Miller-style vocal group. Yeah. Mind you, that style of music did persist. I mean, they put me very much in mind of... I know uh, you're going. the Fraser Hayes Four. Yeah, from Round who, the Horn. Round yeah. the Horn and Beyond yeah. Our Ken before that. Um, yeah. And they start with that, and they're very much in that four-part... Three Blokes and a Girl. Um, Absolutely. It was a hugely popular... Swing harmony thing. I mean, all of the big bands of the late 30s and throughout, throughout the 40s would have had a vocal group like that. Yeah. Um, and in fact, out of such groups came singers like Frank Sinatra, Doris Day. Yeah. All, the, all of those great 40s and 50s crooners would at some point have been in... A vocal group like yeah. that. Normally you had a lead singer and then the harmony mm. group was a, an, entity an entity of itself. Of itself yeah. I just happened no, right. to know you're that right. Frank Sinatra performed in a group called the Hoboken Four, <laughs> in which he was one of that vocal group, but then he transcended that and yeah. went on to yeah. that. In fact, he said they got called a different name every week on this variety yeah. show they were on because they were supposed to be amateurs and they were supposed to be on it only once, yeah. but he said we were the Cockamamie Five and the Hoboken <laughs> Four. And the, you know. well, anyway, that's another, yeah. another set of stories yet again, folks. But... Um, they were formed in Glasgow, were the, the Kentones. The Magnificent Kentones. The Magnificent Kentones. But they were a four-piece, and each member of the band, interestingly, came from a, a different area of Britain. So yeah, one was from England, one was from Scotland, one was from Wales, and one was from Ireland. Yeah. And um, it's probably about the only real interesting thing, <laughs> fact I have well, about them. The interesting uh, thing for me in it uh, was how Ken, mm, of the Kentones... Yes. Marked out, he was a bit like a, when a, a an animal, a dog or something, walks down the street and scent marks along mm. the lampposts and everything else. And if you're unlucky on your trouser leg, yeah, <laughs> Ken from the Kentones made it very clear that he was the boss on several occasions. In that scene, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So Ken, it, shouldn't that be a beef? Uh, yeah, yeah, at yeah, the sorry, start, yeah, everybody, sorry. everybody defers to him and so they they do they go uh can we just and then he goes let's just run through it one more time he, on these three occasions he he yeah. shows by the way i'm ken from the ken these are the ken these are the ken i'm ken i'm ken, I'm ken yes. by the way this magnificent outfit yes. the act you're going to remember from uh this film yes. so uh, i found that quite amusing they were very good. Yeah. Oh, in, they, they do what yeah. they do extremely well. Yeah. And those harmonies are, are magnificent. Again, not really my style of music. Oh, but it's, boy, oh boy, were they square. Yeah. They, oh, were, they so were wearing square. sort of American-style Letterman cardigans. Yeah. Right? They were what, what I would describe as that. And again, they had that 
ability to look middle-aged, although yeah. probably they, they were in their 20s, yeah. probably. They, but they looked like stuff. your granddad. Yeah. It's amazing how just that look ages people. It's, it's strange. But they were another Parlophone act. Were they? Yeah, and worked, in their case, worked with Ron Goodwin. Ah, right. He was their arranger. So Um, they were in good hands. And Ron Goodwin had an excellent career. So the Kentones, they passed the time for a couple of minutes. And then having delivered a a pitch-perfect, note-perfect rendition, they, just as we move off camera for them, they say, right, should we give it another (laughs) (laughs) rehearsal? That was was perfect. Let's (laughs) do it again. (laughs) (laughs) So that was marvellous. The Kentones were nothing more really to say about that. Except that it goes to reiterate this broad canvas and any real rock and roll filmmaker who really understood the medium would not have had someone like the Kentons in the the not at all so we move on to the next set piece and I'd say today there'll be a complaint in popular music that everything's very narrow Mm. in its scope there's not actually much differentiation between the genres. No, Although people no. say, oh, it's this or it's that or that. Yeah. The sound palette is very narrow. Mm. And what everybody's doing is more or less on the same page. Yes. You couldn't say that was the case in the 50s pop music. <laughs> and our next artist to crop up really illustrates that, I would say. Mm. So they're on the train and they, they come to a stop. Yes. Yes. And who pops out of the train? To his adoring fans, and this is the the priceless moment, mm. but a chap by the name of Desmond Lane. Mm-hmm. Desmond Matt, tell Lane. us about Desmond Lane. Desmond Lane, <laughs> with his army of, of screaming girl fans. He was a clarinetist, a jazz clarinetist, mm. who, uh, well, he started off on Tim Whistle at the age of eight, apparently. Um, and he finished us off. He, fi- he finished, me, finished me off with the Tim Whistle, yeah, he, uh, which was a present for his mum, apparently, and she, right. she encouraged his career. Bought him a saxophone later on. And he went on to play with dance bands because he picked up the clarinet whilst he was in the RAF, another person who'd come up mm. through the war and through uh, the entertainment. During a war. Uh, he played in dance bands but then developed his own clarinet jazz act. And he was a regular on British telly and he became famous for switching to the penny whistle. Mm. That was his thing. But he was the support for none other than Bill Haley, on wow. his hugely successful debut UK what tour. What Bill Haley have made for that? I don't know. That, okay. <laughs> he probably quite liked it. Probably more up his street than rock and roll was, I'd imagine. Yeah. He was a popular figure at the time. Almost entirely forgotten now, but he was a popular figure at the time on, on telly. Didn't have any real hits in his own right, but he did feature on a couple of other people's hits. He was on Willie Can by Alma Cogan. Okay. And The Happy Whistler by Cyril Stapleton. The Happy Whistler. (laughs) (laughs) He put a a smile on the face of those teenage girls. Well, I tell you what, it was so funny because you've got... uh, First of all, Des, again... I don't know how old he was in this, but not old. I think he was in his early 30s. He looks up to He looks well into his 40s. Yeah. Um, And he jumps off the train... And there's these girls with banners on their yeah. shirts, Des for prayers. De- yeah, Des de- de- for prayers. Blow me down. Blow, des- yeah, that was Although the way it's blown, it just looks yeah, like you say is blow me. It just see blow me. <laughs> blow me. Blow me, Des. Um, uh, well, if you're lucky. It's quite amazing. And of course, the music he's playing, you know, it, it's not even what you would term jazz. No, it's just so a novelty you, sort of... We see some actual jazz very shortly, which we'll yeah. come to, but this is... <laughs> it's all that sort of... It's twiddly-twaddly sort of music of no no destination. Yeah. And the kids 
who are surrounding him or the girls, the adoring yeah. fans are desperately obviously trying to groove to this. <laughs> there is no groove to be had, folks. It's absolutely. And then just when you're wondering, when you're scratching your head and looking at it going, then he pulls out this penny, ten, penny whistle, jumps onto some crates and yeah. starts giving it. Just gives it a snake charmer thing, A bow-legged he? snake charmer Pied Piper of Hamlin <laughs> job on the top of this. And now, fair play to him. He really can play the penny whistle. Yeah, yeah, you could say that. I mean, he is fluid on the penny whistle. But all the time I'm watching and I'm thinking, how do we get from Penny Whistle on Crate to Jimi Hendrix? Yeah. That's a hell of a journey. Yeah. British pop music did went make. through a big journey over the years. Um, that's why it's less than 10 years. You yeah. go from Desmond Lane playing his Penny Whistle on a Crate to Jimi Hendrix Absolutely. and the Who destroying guitars. Absolutely. <laughs> and reinventing. Just, where's the line? The I can't palette. even see the beginning of the line. <laughs> it's quite incredible. So then... Des finishes his song, goes back to his clarinet for a little bit of again, and then jumps back onto the train. Why the train had even stopped is is unclear because Probably he, there's so many fans. fans they, were, they, were, they were blocking the train. We have to have a Desmond yeah. Lane stop, obviously. Yeah. And then he jumps back onto the train, and just when you think you're done with him, him with everybody else all suddenly shout midgets. And we were watching this, weren't we? We were yeah. watching the going, hold on a minute. Did, did he just say, say what? I, did, I he just say, he said, did he just did, say midgets? <laughs> so we had to rewind the turn and go, midgets. Yeah. Yes, he did. He did. And then, of course, we were able to look up that he is indeed playing the tune midgets. midgets yes. Um, yes. Rewritten later as people of restricted heart. Yeah. But they, um, it's not quite so catchy as No, it wasn't. Line. It didn't, didn't yeah, scan yeah. quite as nicely. Yeah, Desmond Lane. Desmond and it's Lane. just one of those utterly incongruous moments, isn't yeah. it? And I the mean, fact that the fact that young teenage girls are seen to be seen to be. Uh, I can't imagine they ever were though. No. That must have Did been it, was that ever his fan base? I doubt never. it. Never. I doubt it. Uh he must have been housewife's choice on you know something yeah. that was acceptable for all the family, a Sunday night at the Palladium yeah. style turn to be watched, enjoyed and forgotten about. Yeah. You know, immediately. And boy was he forgotten yeah, about. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, yeah, it's quite incredible. I sort of wish I sort of wish that Sid Barrett had put Desmond Lane instead of Arnold Lane. Desmond Lane had a strange <laughs> hobby. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Plain tunes, didn't stick clarinet. <laughs> that would have been better. Yeah. Um, anyway, let's move off Desmond Lane. Okay, I, so I mean, I have to can I just say I really enjoyed the Desmond Lane interlude. Yeah. As I mean, bizarre film goes... Yeah. That was yeah. that was one of the best. It's said with love. It's it's, it's yeah. a really entertaining yeah. scene, and he can obviously play very well and puts an awful lot into it. Mm. Um, so they move along the carriage. The, the carriage. I think they're still in the same carriage, aren't they? They're, they recover from Desmond they're Lane. Recover from the, the the shock of Desmond Lane, mm. and are woofed at mm. by a canine companion belonging to the comedy duo Mike and Bernie Mike Winters. And Bernie Winters. Yeah, they became in the sixties probably the second biggest double act, eclipsed only by Morecambe and Wise. Sad for them that they turned up when they did because their entire career basically existed, existed in the shadow of Morecambe and Wise. I mean, they weren't as good. They were nowhere near as good as Morecambe no. and Wise. Bernie Winters, of course, another connection we have in this series of films, did quite a number of movies with Anthony Newley, mm. including Jazz Boat, Let's Get Married. I believe that Mike and Bernie took a bit of a hiatus after. They were regulars, I should point out, they were regulars on Six Five Special yeah. as performers, but found that the show was bigger than they were when they tried to strike out on their own. 
couldn't sustain it. So they temporarily broke up, which is a harbinger of uh, things to come. And Bernie, who was friends with Anthony Newley, developed a bit of a partnership with him. Mm. So he was in, obviously, Gurney Slade, Jazz Boat, and... Let's Get Married. Let's Get Married, yeah. yeah. But then the, the partnership with his brother eventually re-established yeah. itself, and they became pretty big in over the 60s and early 70s. Well, they, they started out with uh, Tommy Steele, of course. They toured with Tommy Steele. Yes! They were on 6-5 Special in the same sort of period as Tommy Steele was. They'd yeah. left the show about the same time yeah, as he and did. they were spotted by Jack Good. That's how yeah. they got on in the first place. Mm. So mm. They, they were sort of his discovery. So they do a little sketch in this, um, which isn't very funny. It's uh, Yeah, it does. It's, I it's mean, a bit of cross-talk isn't it? It's, it's, it? It doesn't do it for me. I guess for audience at the time, maybe it was funny. I, I don't know. It's, it's, I mean, it's okay with the with the dog and the cross-talk. Or, but, There's uh, a bit of shtick going on, but it seems very staid. It looks like one of those things that hasn't translated to film very well. It's, I think if it was being projected to the back end of an auditorium yeah. live... It would probably work. Bernie, and I've seen some footage of them playing live. Yeah. You see what angle they're at generally to be sat honest, on. Bernie Winters looks to me like a music hall star type mm. performer. So mm. someone who was very good playing broad. Yeah. Uh, he had that comedic face with the big teeth. Mm. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. You know, chubby, so thick round. Set, thick set with the big yeah, teeth. Yeah. yeah. And... He he was always playing to the gallery, which doesn't really work in, on the on a on a close up no. shot. Well, I know Morecambe and Wise. Uh, to be fair, Morecambe and Wise were encouraged to bring it down and focus yeah. on the camera, particularly when they moved to the BBC in mm. the late sixties. But I think they had the ability to do so. I just don't yeah. think. Well, I mean, that said, Bernie Winters had a good television career later with Schnorbitz. With Schnorbitz, because it's interesting that they they working with the dog here in in yeah. Six Five Special movie, yeah. and eventually because they had a serious falling out. Him and Mike had a had a massive yeah, falling out in the late seventies. In the late seventies, and <laughs> Bernie replaced his brother in the, the double out with his pet dog, <laughs> his pet St Bernard Schnorbitz. Schnorbitz. And I vividly remember that duo. Yeah, the, I do. The, the dog plus that, comedian duo. For many when years, I was, when I was a little boy, they were always for on. For many kids years, TV. that's how I would have known. Jack things like that. They're yeah. always on kids' TV. And actually, he was all right with that. But again, it was because it was aimed at a very young audience. That mm. sort of hammy capering. Yeah. does well with that anyway it is what it is a bit of light uh, it's a little interlude a little interlude. comedic interlude. it wasn't awful but it wasn't great yeah it's not returned to either but yeah no it's, thankfully yeah so so that was the winters brothers uh but then we move on from this little comedy interlude to what i think is probably the best quality piece of music in the whole yeah. film well the best in terms of, in terms of musician yeah. sheer musicianship yeah they walk into uh, a carriage and discover Johnny Dankworth and Cleo Lane and their band. So first of all, we have Johnny Dankworth with an instrumental. So he's playing Train Gang, which is his own composition. Yeah. No. And then Cleo Lane sings... What am I going to tell him tonight? Yeah, great. Another Johnny Dankworth song. Yeah. And so both of these are uh, an oasis in terms yeah. of musical content. for, it. And I think they're also really strong of the period so mm. at this time jazz of course was huge yeah it was trad jazz was huge and sort of cool yeah. jazz and they're very much on the cool huge. side yeah. aren't they yeah. so yeah. they are on the ronnie scott's side yeah. of this picture yeah, and much. johnny dankworth was a, a disciple of the great american saxophonist. i think it was johnny hodges he was a big fan of johnny hodges mm. and of course he became accepted with the heavyweights in the States. He was the mm. first British jazz performer to get invited to play at the Newport Jazz Festival. Is that right? Absolutely. Wow. So he started out playing with other acts. Yes. 
But he formed the Johnny Dankworth Seven early in the 50s. He was very successful there, but he, he then got his orchestra, his big band yeah, together. Yeah. And it was the big band that went to Newport and actually created quite a stir in the, in the respect that a lot of the American music critics said that Johnny Dankworth's band played with the rhythmic freedom and the panache that was missing from most American bands of the yeah. day. So they were saying, this is what big band music used yeah. to sound like. Not that he was old-fashioned at all. There was never that. But it, he, he said, here's the spirit that drove the great American big bands. And actually, the big bands of today have kind of lost that spirit. Mm. So they were really appreciative of him. He struck up great friendships with the very heavyweights. Duke Ellington became yes. Yes. A, a big friend of his. And Clark Terry, the trumpet player, mm -hmm. he collaborated with a lot. I mean, the list of names that then performed or collaborated with... Johnny Dankworth is too long to fit into any podcast yeah. to just illustrate how high up the food chain John Dankworth got in the jazz world. He had tours with Nat King Cole, Sarah Vaughan, Jerry Mulligan. He performed with Lionel Hampton, the great band leader, Ella mm. Fitzgerald. Wow. Uh, he performed with Dizzy Gillespie, where he did uh, symphonic pieces with Dizzy Gillespie. Mm. Uh, so all the big George Shearing, Toot Salmons, Benny Goodman, Herbie Hancock. I mean, basically everybody. You know, that's I mean, the, it's the, just that's everyone. The top, the top so players. for a British jazz, I know George Shearing was a British jazzman, but for a British jazz performer, orchestrator, and composer to be asked because you don't ask to work with those people, they ask to work yeah. with you. Say, yeah, we'll have you along, and to be working with those kind of people, you're right at the top. Yeah. And at this point, Britain is just starting to really produce jazz musicians mm. who are on a par that can stand those. Who to can nose, live with those guys? Um, yeah. With those guys, because we're also getting Tubby Hayes around about yeah, the same Tubby time, Hayes, yeah. and also Stan Tracy, the mm. piano player, who was the, the resident pianist at Ronnie Scott's for a long time, went on to make the Under Milk Woods Suite, which is a fine album, really, really good. Johnny Dankworth is part of that move that we're producing world-class jazz musicians yeah, by this absolutely. point. absolutely. And Ronnie Scott's, of course, wouldn't exist if they hadn't produced that no. calibre of musicians. He also went on to compose yes. for TV a lot, didn't he? Yeah, and, well, for and, film. And, film. and film. He did Saturday Night and Sunday Morning, a, yeah. be a beautiful yeah. score for Saturday Night and yeah. Sunday Morning. Carol Rice, also for Carol Rice, he did Morgan, the Football Case for Treatment. Yeah. He did a thing that. With David Warner. Yeah. He did The Servant. Yeah, we've just yeah, had servant. The Servant keeps cropping up. Yeah, I know, two well, two. rightly so. It's brilliant, a brilliant movie. film. Actually, and Morgan's Suitable Case for Treatment is also a very interesting film. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And Darling, he made. Yeah. John Schlesinger, I think. And, yep. uh, and Modesty Blaze again for, uh, yeah, for, that was for, a, for Joseph Losey. Yeah, the so they, they were both in the same years. Morgan, a Suitable yeah. Case for a slightly different quality of the film. Modesty Blaze, so. uh, yeah, is so. what it is. Not, it is not, what not it is. He did The Avengers. Did he? And Tomorrow's World. Okay. Yeah, for TV. Yes. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh, that's absolutely. very interesting. Yeah. Cleo became one of our preeminent jazz vocalists. I mean, an absolutely brilliant technique, and not to mention charisma, and somebody who, again, can stand nose to nose with, with the great. I think it wouldn't be over-exaggerating to say that she's the most important British jazz vocalist of all time. I think you're probably right. Uh, in in yeah. her standing... In the career span that she's had, she's still with us, of course. Yeah, 90. Um, and speaking of span, she also had an enormous 
vocal range. Yeah. So from the real top stuff to a very mellifluous. She was generally a contralto. Yeah, she thing, was. But she could hit these incredible with yeah. control. And, with control. Yeah. And she had a, be- a beautiful low end. The girl. <laughs> well, a beautiful low end. The girl. I couldn't possibly comment. Yeah. Um, but she was also very, very well known for her improvisation, yeah. her scatting, her scatting, uh, her form through jazz. So there's a lot of singers who sing standards who would be classed as crooners there are those who would be classed as jazz singers Mm. and then there are those who were comfortable in both mediums and Cleo Lane falls really into that but also she worked in musical theatre as well she She did she She was a good actress career acting yeah yeah just fantastic. Well, actor we should say in those days she would call an actress of course an actor because at this point they're on their way to becoming the first couple of British jazz yeah because they became just household names in their own right, as well as highly yeah. respected jazz musicians. They began their Stables Arts Centre yeah, in the, the 70s, grounds of their yeah. home mm. in Milton Keynes, the glamorous environs of Milton Keynes. And also they were both knighted. Yes. Uh, ordained, whichever way you want yeah. to call it. <laughs> she but, was yeah, dame. Uh, yeah. He was dame, she was... No, it was... Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, she was, she was made a dame in... Um, or made dame, I don't know what yeah. the expression is, in 1997. And Johnny himself was knighted in 2006. Mm. So, yeah, both of them got the very top honour. Fun enough, in a connection to your previous film, she did work on stage with Robert Morley, ah. who was in, in The Young in the Ones, young ones in of course, our first a connection movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great connection. career. I mean, Mag- one of the best careers in British jazz. I think yeah. that there is clearly very yeah. much a revered artist. Yeah. And in, in a film which is incredibly uneven and in which the musical content could not be more of a roller coaster. Mm. These guys are just there in the middle being good. Yeah, fantastic. The end. Yeah. The other thing I like about that scene is the girl's hand jiving. The, the, oh, the, yeah, the, there's yeah. the, these three bo- bohemian looking. Well, it's funny, isn't it? Because girls the, the, the audience appears to change at this point. Yeah. Because everybody appears in the final scenes yeah. of the movie. Yeah, yeah. But I think they had a, a Desmond Lane set. Yeah, a group of people. And then they have these bohos. Yeah. Because you can this. spot them in the final yeah. segments, the same extras. Dancing yeah, around, yeah, and, and yeah. The, but these are the cool, groovy daddy o yeah. crowd, yeah, and um, people start flicking their fingers, yeah. yeah, and you start seeing girls with the pixie cut, cropped hairdos, yeah. and the blokes in their lumberjack shirts, yeah, and absolutely. Like that. It's certainly getting a sort of funky and more, and they're really getting down, daddy o, and one of them, one of whom dances with Diane Todd, yeah, who respectfully yeah. dances with her, and uh, yeah. Nice little scene. Yeah. And we go from there. They then proceed further down the train. They're still on the train, folks. Yeah. Past the kitchens, where they overhear singing in a, in a magnificent high tenor voice. Yeah, falsetto um, sort of uh, yeah. yeah. A singer from Trinidad called Victor Soverall, mm. who was yet another Carol Lewis uh, discovery. Yeah. He'd won the talent show, won a thousand quid, which in 1957, 58 would have been a huge amount of money. Yeah, and a, a, a fine single. I've done a huge amount. Of, I, I know he made a few singles, but didn't mm. have any it's a certain, grade A hits. It's a particular singing style, very um, sort of sentimental mm. and very touching. It has that gentle calypso feel mm. to his vocal, which is really great. And of course, at this time, it's important to say mm. that calypso with Harry Belafonte's yeah. album Calypso, which was a huge record mm. in those mid 50s. That Calypso was considered one of the musical stars that might be 
the replacement for rock and roll, the new rock and roll. Yeah, because they thought rock and roll was going to probably expire in six months, and the next thing to come along was Calypso. Calypso. And although Calypso is very popular and remained popular in the early 60s, people like Lance Percival uh, would do topical improvised Calypsos on telly. And and, uh, Bernard Cribbins with Garcip Calypso. Oh, yeah. But Calypso never quite crossed over in the same way. It's it's stuck around. It's it's like, it's it's really, it's it's West Indian folk music. Um, And I think that the, the thing with Calypso is rhythmically it's very nice and they're very tuneful tunes generally mm. it's all lovely stuff but rhythmically it doesn't have the same pound pounding so, beat as rock yeah. and roll did and as then ska and reggae yeah. because ska and reggae evolved out of calypso i mean uh, there's also there's a strong influence of yeah, it. yeah i um, mean calypso yeah and and mento yeah. music mento was probably a bit more rhythmic and it's out of that that this sort of scar beat comes yeah. and then it's out of scar where they slow it down and yeah basically smoke much more weed <laughs> that, that we've got this <laughs> slower like version a, of scar yeah. that becomes regular yeah. yeah so yeah so that yeah. i can do collapse i can't do Calypso. yeah well it was calypso <laughs> collapso yeah. for for that in terms yeah. of its competition to rock and roll but victor several definitely has shades of that it's a nice little number. Yeah, it doesn't pleasant it. enough. Yeah, and right. he's then very swiftly interrupted by his colleague, yeah. who is Jimmy Lloyd, yeah. who's another Trinidadian yeah. singer, who'd been in a number of things in Trinidad back in the West, uh, where he'd, including, he played with the Vi Burnside All Girl Orchestra. Well, I bet he did. He, but he was the the only male. Uh, member is a male vocalist of an all-girl orchestra. <laughs> Did you have to say member? Uh, well, <laughs> could take what you can get, but it's um, <laughs> he stood proud among them. Hi, um, ladies, I am the only male member. Uh, yes, he moved over to the UK. He was doing well in in the West Indies. Moved over to the UK and did all right there, and made several. Appearances on Six Five Special. Mm. He sort of established himself quite. He was nicely. a light baritone, wasn't he? You yeah. know, uh, yeah. again, he didn't have a, a big hit as well. But he sang the vocal version of the "You're Never Alone with a Strand." Oh, theme. did he? Yeah, oh. that was him. That was his big thing. But the song he does in this is very nice. It's very yeah, it's in, nice. uh, it swings, and it yeah. puts me in mind actually of around the same time there was Ray Ellington. Yeah, playing on the Goon Show every yeah. week. Shades of that, aren't Shades they? Shades yeah. of that. But yeah, very nice, very nice. Yeah, swinging, nice little jaunty number song. puts it across swinging nicely. Song. And we go from swinging to quite the opposite. They walk further down the, yeah. the carriage, and who do they bump into but Petula Clark? Wow, a, a beer moth of a star, really. Yeah. We could do a whole show on Petula Clark alone. Yeah. Her career has spanned eight decades. Yeah, and she was already an established star. She was well, only this... in her 20s at this point, but she was already a star with a huge career behind her well, she started as a nine-year-old yeah so pre-second world war she gets an inadvertent break and then she mm. broadcasts and then during the war again she does morale broadcasts yeah as a child star she was viewed as the british shirley temple yes and actually she performed alongside she toured in those days with the other big child star of the day which was julie andrews Ah. Julie Andrews crops up yet again. Yeah. But the two of them were going out together, entertaining, and yeah. are both child prodigies, both singing stars. Well, I always think that Petula Clark's the only person that could make Julie Andrews seem like Courtney Love. I know, She's, yeah. <laughs> yeah. If there was anyone Very more prim, more prim than, than Julie Andrews, you, you're dead right. And she'd appeared in a number of films in the late 40s. Well, she'd, um, she'd done the Huggets. The Huggets movies, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And she recorded her debut single in 1949. Oh, yeah, amazing. Yeah, 
and then had a number of hit singles through the There's 50s. a connection. She did vice versa with Anthony Newley. So as a, oh, yet another connection yeah, with another our series. Yeah. In fact, I do know from my Newley connections that she was really, really close with Tony Newley. That they forged a big friendship. That doesn't surprise me. Uh, going back, I'm not sure whether they ever had a romantic entanglement. I wouldn't rule it, it out. He seems to have had a romantic yeah. entanglement in most of the women yeah, he worked yeah. with. I, so. I, I heard it once that she had a crush on uh, Newley, which lasted for for a while. So I'm guessing he may have given wouldn't her a little out. smooch. But we, 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 let's not get into litigious business but certainly they remain very very good friends she continues having hits through the 50s and Mm. the one she sings in this film baby lover yeah was a hit for her a lot of the times they you got famous artists singing niche songs but this was a hit got to number 13 in the uk but interestingly significantly it got to number six in the french charts although she'd begun performing in france already Mm. and had something of a reputation this is her first hit and it's significant that it was bigger in, in France. France, and it was, and that triggered a series of mm. French language hits. Yeah. Well, she was multilingual. Yeah, well, she did uh, Italian numbers in mm. Italian as well, yeah. didn't she? And hits all through Europe and French-speaking territories like French Canada. Yeah, but yeah. it's important to say that she would have been an established star at the time of the Six yeah. Five Special, without doubt. Well, because I they say it, you're Petula Clark. Yeah, you know, she's obviously she'd already, a well-known. Was, she'd made about twenty odd movies by this stage, uh, mm. so she's already an established star. And she's already had plenty of hits, though no big number ones or anything. Her first big number one comes with a rather inconsequential German pop hit called Sailor in 1961, which is an easily forgotten song, I have to say. And then she hits her golden period. Yeah, where she hooks up with Tony Hatch, yeah, yeah the British Bacharach. Yeah, and they have a massive international hit on both sides of the Atlantic with Downtown. She visited Tony Hatch because he had a load of new material he wanted Mm. her to look at. And she didn't like any of it. She was going, no, none of these are right. And then he said, well, I'm, I've sort of started noodling around on this. Mm. And it was the basic chord progression and the initial melody mm. of it. And she said to him, if you can write a lyric that's as good as the melody, mm. that's the one. Yeah. That's the song. So she spotted that song immediately. And of course he did. Mm. And Downtown became her great signature. But she had lots of other big hits. Yeah, yeah, with Hatch. I mean, Don't Sleep on the Subway. Yeah, and, subway and she wrote some herself. Another Man's Grass mm. is Always Greener was yeah. one of her own okay. songs. I Couldn't Live Without Your Love, I think, was one of her own songs. She created a very definitive sound of hers in that mm. mid-60s period. So she became really known as the first lady of the British invasion. Yeah, partly yeah. Yeah. so, I guess. Mm. She, well, her and Dusty, uh, yeah. really, yeah. yeah. She made a couple of movies in the wake of that. She did Finian's Rainbow. Finian's Rainbow, Rainbow, which I think we mentioned in episode zero. Yeah, Yeah, with Fred Astaire and Tommy Steele, which was directed by uh, Francis Ford Coppola. Yeah, weird to think that, Yeah, strange that, yeah. Shortly after that, in 69, she made Goodbye Mr Chips, the musical version of it. With Peter Peter O'Toole. Which was directed by Herbert Ross, who we were talking about last time. Yes, there we go. It's It's all linked, It's all linked, folks. It's Mm. all linked. And also, something, a, a, a little factet I like around that time is that she was in Canada... Mm. Uh, in 69 must have been recording a French language TV series mm. and it was going really badly she was being heckled all the time yeah she? and it just wasn't I'd, I don't know what the full story of it but I know she was not happy at all and really lonely and homesick and just wanted some company a friend she knew who's around in Canada at the moment and notices that John Lennon is having his bed in with Yoko Ono so she goes to see him and it turns out she arrives there on the day he's getting ready to record Give Peace, Give a, Peace Chance. a Chance. So she is part of the chorus of Give Peace a Chance. Brilliant. I just, you know, yeah. it's, it's just, a, I love that little fact. And certainly as she's this 
this queen of prim British pop, yeah, is singing Lennon at his hairiest, doing um, doing doing a protest anthem, yeah. and she's on it. I love that. There's another nice story actually, uh, and that is in the late 60s, 68, just about the time of Martin Luther King's assassination. Yeah. She was in the states. She does a TV special, and she does a duet with Harry Belafonte. Uh-huh. And at one point in that, she takes Harry Belafonte's arm, you know, wraps her arm mm. around him and yeah. cozies up with him, as was pretty much the style in those days. She did it a yeah. billion times with yeah. Dean Martin. And that had never happened on American TV before. Yes. A black artist and a white, white woman attaching herself to it. Yeah. And the, the sponsors were worried that the whole of their southern audience would not like this cool. at all. And so they said, no, we want other shots of that sequence mm. to be broadcast, not the shots where Petula Clark is holding. Petula Clark and her husband, who was who worked with her, mm. refused. Yes. And they actually right. deleted all of the other sequence that didn't have uh, yes. her holding Belafonte. So the one that was aired was... That. Right, yeah, and they made absolute sure. So even though we've called her prim and everything, yeah. she had some grit and some metal yeah. about her. She stood up for that, and yeah. actually those sponsors left the program. And the other little that? anecdote is she was instrumental in Karen Carpenter in the Carpenters' is that right? career. Yeah, so she discovered quite a few artists yeah. going through time, and one of them that she helped was the Carpenters, who she'd seen at a celebrity party performing. Yeah. And she thought, these guys have really got something. And so she pushed them forward. So Petula Clark was very instrumental in the Carpenters. And she took Karen Carpenter to visit Elvis Presley backstage. So you, know, no, you can imagine, Petula Clark is a heavyweight of the entertainment industry. Mm. So every door opens for Petula Clark. That's how big yeah. she is. So she takes Karen Carpenter backstage to see Elvis and apparently Elvis was very pleased about this because at the time Karen Carpenter was yeah. a hot property yeah. and Petula Clark was always hot property and uh, he was known to be very excited by this to the point where he's going I'm in the room with the two hottest properties in female music yeah, yeah. And, uh, and she said he didn't exactly have us but he had a damn good go <laughs> <laughs> And she says, I'm not going to say any more about that That's at this time. No, indeed. <laughs> so, yeah, Elvis, the dirty dog. The dirty he, dog. The hound he dog. He was a hound dog, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> had a crack at, uh, had a crack at uh, Karen and, uh, and Petula Clark. So I like that. I think that's quite... Was there a little less conversation, a little more action? Yeah, it sounds like <laughs> some there was, yeah, yeah. But yeah, so, and then, obviously, she went on... Um, to have a stage career as well. She had Norma Desmond in Andrew Lloyd yeah. Webber's uh, Sunset Boulevard. Yeah. And, she was uh, in Blood Brothers. Yeah, and Blood Brothers, of yeah. course. She yes. Blood Brothers. Yeah, and she's still work, working today. She's still making yeah. albums in her 80s. Incredible. Eight, eight Incredible. decades of Petula Clark. She's just a monster in the industry. Okay, let's bring her back to this particular yes, movie. Yes, bring her back to the train. Put it on track. She is there because she's talking to our two young heroines. Yes. And wants their opinion on this new, new song, song that she's that, got in. I've been given a lot of people are, are yeah. cranks, aren't they? But, uh, yeah. but, uh, I, get I think it's of, rather good. I think this one's really got it. Yeah. You know, and, she, she, and then she sings this, can I say, pretty ordinary, yeah. god-awful Again, it's got that sort of sambery sort of rhythm. It, to it, it puts me it? in mind of what Paul Anko was. Yeah. Baby love. I didn't like it at all, I've yeah. got to say. It's by far from her best work. Yeah, but like it. I say, it was yeah, a hit for her and, and began a. It's beneath her yeah. vocally. It's beneath. Yeah. It's sub rock and roll. Yeah. It's just no. No, no. 
Great Petula Petula Clark. Petula Clark, wonderful. This song notwithstanding, Petula Clark, Magnificent, magnificent career. And after um, Anne has a bit of a confidence wobble, yes, she and, does, and storms <laughs> off the storms off the train. I can't do this. I can't do this. Only to be dragged back on by Judy. They sit back down, have a heart to heart, and are then interrupted by the aged face of Finley Curry. Yeah, Finley Curry. And we talk about someone having a a, a long career. This is a man who'd, who'd had a career stretching back to the nineteenth century at this point, and um, was a veteran actor, for, Scottish actor. I don't know all about his career, but I'm reckoning that, again, his style is rooted in music hall. Uh, yeah. He, start, he started off in the variety halls yeah. in, the, in the end of the 19th century, but moved into character acting as, yeah. as his career went on. Famously played um, Magwitch in David Lean's 1946 version yeah. of Great Expectations. Yeah. That's probably his best remembered role, but he mm. was massively prolific. It's what if you watch a channel like Talking Pictures or something oh, like that. Yeah, he's all he's in the credits on on loads of the films, and for instance, he he narrates Whiskey Galore. Yes, he's the voice narrating that. Uh, he's in Around the World in Eighty Days. He's in Ben Hur, the nineteen fifty nine version. Yeah, Billy Liar. Yes, I remember him in Ben Hur. Yeah, um, nineteen sixty three. And he's in an interesting film, Otto Preminger film called Bunny Lake is Missing. Oh, British right. movie. Um, yeah, yeah, uh, that's a very interesting film with interesting cast. He's in that. Um, yeah, and he. Uh, just really I see prolific. him all the time on, on, on Talking yeah. Pictures. I really prolific character actor with a sort of craggy face yep. um, and white hair. He died in 1968 at the age of 90 and he was still working out. He'd done an episode of The Saint um, there. And yeah, just a, a veteran actor who would have been pretty well known to oh, general audiences in, in yeah. 1958. Yeah, he would have been a, a sort of um, what we think of as a sort of John de Maizière figure, probably to them. Yeah, I know. I mean, the same type of actor, but as well known as that. So yeah, not uh, so, so sort of people who was in people's zeitgeist. Yes, a but, not, but never working, at the forefront of it. Constantly yeah. working character actor. Yeah. yeah. So today it would be somebody like Richard Wilson would be in that role. But yeah, I can't think of too many other actors. But yeah, I mean, yeah, someone, someone of that. Yeah, but yeah, a little interesting. I was not particularly aware of his work when I saw the film and obviously he's meant to be a recognisable face to a 50s audience it probably was but as yeah. much as I respect him and I've really enjoyed his performances in quite a few films that I've yeah. seen uh, I saw one recently where he was playing uh, a slightly delusional hermit mm. who's sort of you know lives in and out of his he's a shuffling sort of fellow who lives in and out of his, his room mm. and he was great so I, I, I think it, and he does this perfectly and everything but to me, it's a complete waste of time. Yeah. yeah. Interlude. It doesn't. It it's it's not poignant enough to sort of bring a tear to the eye no. or make you think or think. Oh gosh, yes, I hadn't thought of it that way before. Mm-hmm. And you're not interested enough in the development because there is no character development in this. No. You're not interested enough in Diane Todd's journey through this to yeah. think. Oh, thank God, Finley Curry mm-hmm. came along and got her back on board. Yeah. Because actually, advice he, advice he gives her is more or less don't put your daughter on the stage, Mrs. Worthington, Worthington isn't yeah. it? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah, don't bother. <laughs> sing for yourself, by yeah. all means, but don't sing for the public. Yeah. <laughs> Which actually was good good advice in this rock and roll world, but yeah. not for the theatre goers who very much enjoyed Diane Todd's excellent career. Yes. But yeah, a waste of time. If, I, if I'd been given the job of uh, doing the editing on that, that would have all ended up on the floor. Yeah. But I guess it gave um, Norman Hoodis something to something to do, but mm. rather than just link the bits together, I guess. Yeah. But um, but there we go. Yeah, it happened. 
it happened. <laughs> um, and so moving on from their encounter, mm. they walk past the compartment of an artist they don't even see or interact with or who doesn't no. even interact <laughs> with anyone else, who is Joan Regan. Yeah. So she's on her own brushing her hair and dreaming. I mean, her hair is quite something. It is. It's whole. quite a sight, isn't it? It's yeah, quite yeah. When I watched this movie with Mia the Half, she was most taken with the hair of Joan Regan. She was, <laughs> she was jealous of that hair. She said, I just can never get my hair to do that. I suspect that if you touched Joan Regan's hair in this thing, it would have been like a solid block. It probably could have kept out bullets. Yeah. Um, it probably could. It probably wasn't impervious to flame. Yeah. I'm getting... Yeah, but, yeah, but yeah. It, probably bullets, but not flame. I think yeah. it's not... Um, the best thing, if you wanted to take on Joan Regan with her hair like this, is incendiary pigs. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, they'll fly anywhere, then. <laughs> Those incendiary pigs. So, um, yeah. But I, I confess I know nothing, really, about yeah. Joan Regan. Well, I've uh, done a little bit of scouting mm, about. And tell me. It tell turns me, tell out, because uh, I know you're riveted to know yes, uh, all Joan about Regan, Joan Regan. No. She was um, a protege of Bernard Delphon. Oh, the great producer. Yeah, the great producer and brother of Lou Grade. Um, so let me connect that up before you go on with a guy who keeps cropping up in this particular podcast without mm. actually having any involvement <laughs> at all, and that's Tony Newley. Oh. Bernard Delphon <laughs> was behind the roar of the grease paint, the smell of the crab, ah. and I think also stopped the world. That doesn't surprise me. Yeah. So he was he yeah. was the producer well, he's on those shows. a big impressive. Yeah, though, wasn't he? yeah, big, he worked big. with Newley on a lot of stuff. So yeah. interesting. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. go back. So so, so uh, and of course was recently portrayed in the Stan and Ollie movie I forget yes. the name of the actor but he was he's a, one of the main characters in that big um, big move and shake of this yeah, era big, yeah. yeah yeah and she was a recording artist Joan Regan and she was one of these people in back in in this period mm. a common practice particularly in Britain was if there was an American hit mm. there would be several rival versions would be yeah. quickly recorded um to to sort of compete with it yep. in the British charts and majority of her um singles of this era were those were were versions of american hits yep Um, what sort of style do we know because this this one she is is very much in the old-fashioned 50s there's one that well the the, the one that really caught my attention was a version of a song called ricochet oh right um which is sort of swingish sort of song Mm. that she recorded um with the group the squadronaires oh yeah 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 and that mainly catches my attention because the Squadronaires featured on saxophone uh, a player called Cliff Townsend, mm. who was the father of Pete Townsend oh. of the Who. Wow! And he and he and if, actually around about this point he had a hit single himself. Mm. Uh, did Cliff Townsend in his own right? But yeah, she'd had a single of two or three years before yeah, Ricochet, the, right. the the Six Five Special movie. Yeah, mm. which she did with the Squadronaires, mm. and it's it's all right. Yeah, I mean, this, right. this song she sings is instantly forgettable. Yeah, I could it's, even... It's, it's not as cringeworthy as the Diane Todd numbers, no. but it's nothing. It passes by me. And you could lose it, that whole section. Yeah, you could, it wouldn't make the any film, difference at all. It wouldn't make the least bit of difference. In fact, and it would be better because it yeah. just slid it, 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 it does. It interrupts the what flow there is. It interrupts the... Well, the, caveat the that she's a beautiful woman yeah. and she sings very nicely in the more relaxed style, so not in yeah. the grand, overblown, in a crooner style. Yeah. In a crooner style, she, I call it. Yeah. It's, it's all right. I can't even remember how the song goes off the top. No, of no, no. I have um, no memory of it. But the year after this, she, she did a lot of telly and variety... Mm stuff um the year after this she began a series called be my guest no oh, relation to the no, film that we're gonna be my guest. um 
but yeah, she did five series of that apparently, oh, five I, which I think was a variety type show. She was the host of that, so she must have had some traction. She yeah. must have been relatively and popular yeah, with the audience of the she day. She was friends with Vera Lynn apparently, okay. and and worked with her. Yeah, and yeah, she moved to America in the sixties. Um, More modern style than Vera Lynn. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, but yeah, she moved to America, and I think she had some health problems later on that precluded oh. her from from working. But and her career slowed down. Yeah. Generally. Well, but, I mean, her style still... would not have lasted very long. No. But she did make some comeback gigs. She did come back to England towards the end of her life and did did make a few appearances and did start singing again. So, yeah, that's all I know about Joan Regan. But, okay. but um, yeah, she she was certainly there. So the day of the studio recording comes around and they all usher in. Oh, no, first... wait a minute. We're missing... Oh, no, we, we are missing a bit on the train. We haven't discussed mm. the bit. We did allude to it earlier where she, in her ghostly fashion, sings a song. But who she sings a song to? Oh, yes. Yeah, no, we've alluded to, to them. Yes, uh, to Pete Murray and Joe Douglas. Exactly. Who were the presenters of um, Six Five Special. Oh, Six Five Special at this point, the main presenters. Yeah, Pete Murray was uh, in the early stages of his career, but he was a veteran, became a veteran broadcaster. He was pre his prime in terms of his height of fame, but he was still a well-established figure by yeah. this day. I mean, he'd been broadcasting again since the 40s. Probably very late 40s. Yeah, um, and again, he cut his teeth, I think, in Radio yeah, Luxembourg Radio Luxembourg and, stuff, and yeah. places like that. He's clearly got a, a good sort of quirky... Style. I mean, the, and uh, and the first time we see him, he's face down on the on a table, fast asleep. Mm. And um, what clips I've seen, as well as on in this film, are the existing clips of Six Five Special that do the rounds occasionally. He's got yeah, a bit of a bit of a quirky way with the camera. He, he knows how to work. Yeah. He knows how to work it. Yeah, he's a he's sort of gangly, and it's still it's still a rather sort of. Um, Former. Head boy, school prefect, sort of. <laughs> well, he um, was a radio announcer when he first started, mm. and then became sort of DJ, and works his way through the gears, I suppose, onto uh, BBC. Mm. He was on a lot of the panel shows, Jukebox Jury, yes. Thank You Lucky Stars. Yes, that's, that's right. That's yeah. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, became one of the Radio 1. He was. One of DJs, the Radio 1 DJs, earlier ones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then Radio 2. Mm. It's the journey. Yes, yeah, the journey. It's the journey of all. Oh, Radio 1 disc jockeys. Radio we all start one. talking. A bit like hey, Terry Morgan there. Uh, the past. Oh, is that Cambridge? Oh, of course. It's not going on. We can't understand what we're saying. We're talking all the way. Oh, would you think? Oh, I don't But not Pete Murray. Yeah, but not Pete Murray. He never did that, as far as I know. But And then, well, he just carried on, really, didn't he? Till he... I don't know where his career is. Uh, it just sort of, it just, it just sort of petered, petered out. out yeah. I think he got a bit old, and I think he rolled a few people up the wrong I mean, way towards the end. But he, because um, he's still with us, he's ninety-three years mm. old at the time of recording, mm. where we are now, and still with us, and he still shows up on as a talking head on on programs about this era of music. Mm. He, he will still. He did present the Eurovision up. a couple of times. as he well. He did. Yes, mm. he did. Mm. He did. So no, he was he was a well known and and you know quite I have busy. a feeling he was on LBC and play. I think he yeah. moved to away from music and on to talk radio. I mm. seem to have a uh, mm. a feeling but that wouldn't surprise me. Yeah, but he's paired here with uh, as he was on television with Joe Douglas, mm. Josephine Douglas, who um, not only was the co presenter of the show, she was a co producer of the mm. show, and that was something we alluded to earlier. Is is um, was fairly rare at the time for a female television producer in any form and co-produced it with Jack Good 
although how well they got on, I think it was originally produced together, but I think after a while they did alternate episodes. So mm. she produced one, he produced the other. So, she didn't do much in front of camera. No, uh, I think she started to concentrate more on the backroom yeah, back stuff. Yeah, yeah. According to the IMDb, her nickname uh, was Joe. Oh, well, you see. Well, you know, they were very... That obviously um, shows what a quirky... Uh, yeah, she looked pretty straight. You yeah, know, pretty but, prim. But I think that was also partly the personality. And there's there's some publicity problems <laughs> with her and um, the other regular presenter was Freddie Mills, who we were talking yeah, about. Yeah, Freddie Mills. And she's playing a straight woman to the two mm. blokes. Yeah. Um, the sensible one. Yeah. She probably was the sensible one. Yeah, well, she was the producer of the She show. was the one she, that got things done. Yes, absolutely. Come on, let's listen to this nonsense. Mm. But, uh, but yeah, she, she, she worked mostly in, the, in TV. Hmm. But she did produce some films, most yeah. interestingly for me, and it's a film I'm gagging to see and I haven't got around to it yet, is Hammer's Dracula AD 1972, which updates it into, into what was then the present wow. day. And apparently it's full of those uh, slightly too old hippies that you get in 70s films. But yeah, Christopher Lee, Peter Cushing, of course, <laughs> Stephanie Beecham, Christopher Neem, who's a good actor, Caroline Munro, the gorgeous Caroline Munro. Yeah, oh, yes, yeah, yeah. Very gorgeous, who else? Oh, Marsha Hunt was in it as well. So it's got a great cast, and it was written by Don Horton, who um, wrote a couple of really good Doctor Who stories, particularly Inferno from 1970. Always got to be a Doctor Who. Always got to be a Doctor Who reference. But yeah, so that's that's a film I really want to see. I haven't got around to it yet. I must make a point of watching that soon. Worth uh, mentioning at this point, while we're talking about producers and everything, the co-producer of this film, or the the main producer, was Herbert Smith. Uh And Herbert Smith was working for Paramount British. Mm. So they were quite a big arm of the US-controlled Paramount, of course. Okay. And uh, he was in charge of a heck of a lot of movies, including Henry V with Laurence Olivier. Oh, really? And Hamlet with Laurence Olivier. Goodness me. Uh, Goodness so, me. Yeah, and he also did the Tommy Steele story. Ah, so it all ties together. So he's actually quite an important figure in that respect. Yeah, yeah. So a pioneer in, uh, in British rock and roll. Yeah, movies. I mean, and obviously... And a big player in, in the film industry yeah. generally. I Very much, I think, I think a well-respected figure in uh, British filmmaking. Oh, Bob today. Oh, what a girl. Oh, Bob today. Oh, what a girl. Put out. today. Put out. today. Oh, Bob today. Oh, what a girl. I caught a train. I met a real dame, she was a hipster, oh god darn man, she was a pretty, from New York City, trucked on down, that old prayer lane with the heat, and a hole, and I just couldn't let her go, so get along, sweet little woman, get along, better be on your way, get along. Oh! 
real calm jerk We got the train That old El Paso Her lover was so fine, Jack I couldn't let her go A little heat And a hole And I still couldn't let her go Well, I get along Sweet little woman, get along You better be on your way Get along Sweet little woman, get along you better be on your way With the heat And I still couldn't let her go Well, that train kept rolling all night long I said that train kept rolling all night long That train kept rolling all night long I said that train kept rolling all night long Well, that train kept rolling all night long And I just couldn't let her go Go up over the points, over the points, over the points Over the points, over the points, over the points. So we finally disembark from the train. Yep. And the day the TV broadcast comes around, excitement all round, I dare say. Mm. And the first sight we're greeted with in the studio is a big bone body of Don Lang. Yeah, but big I'm, Don Lang. Big Don Lang, trombone-clutching Don Lang. Yeah, I don't um, know if he actually even plays his trombone in this no, clip. No. I can't remember, but he was a jive merchant. His band yeah. was that Bill Haley-esque setup mm. with that guitar sound and those yes. open drums, sort of quite a lot of yeah, space yeah, around yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Double bass, uh, the sax. And, yeah, the and roaring sax, yeah, the guttural yeah. kind of sax. And it's very much modelled on that. And I guess they sort of both took the expedient step of moving into rock and roll yeah they saw that was the new thing coming him and Haley. yeah would have, would have seen would have would have yeah thought ah this is we need to change tack pretty swiftly yeah i i think that don lang although i assumed always that he'd just taken his jazz band made them a rock and roll band to, to fit the zeitgeist I understand from just a little bit, looking a little bit deeper, that he, he did enjoy rock and roll. He, he yeah. was into it. You know, it, it well, was did, a full-hearted yeah. attempt. Well, it's a good effort. For that style for of that rock style, and roll. It's that more sort of swing... Yeah, swing-based uh, ...oriented yeah. uh, thing, a la Bill Haley. Yeah. Because he'd had a few hits. He'd had a hit uh, a few years before, before he went frantic. He uh, had a hit with a song called Cloudburst. Yeah. Which has a section where he sings in vocalese. Oh, right. Okay. He's no Annie Ross, but no, it's a decent... Attack of Vocalese he has yeah, yeah. On, on that song, and and that was a hit for him, and and yeah, he was. This is probably his most prominent period, though, as a musician. Yeah, and was his regular appearances on Six Special. And after this, he moved into session work, right? As okay. a trombonist, and he played in a number of sessions, but or lots of sessions. But one of the most prominent was he's he's part of the horn section on Revolution One, Revolution One, yeah, on the White right album, album, which yep. is the slower acoustic version yeah. of the familiar. Yeah, say you want a revolution. Yeah, yeah. So there's a horn section on it, and the trombone, one of the trombones on it, is Don yeah. Lang. Yeah, yeah. He had a um, top ten hit with which doctor? Oh, is that right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, as well, so he, he achieved reasonable success, and definitely a, a feather in his cap to appear on the White Album. So, yeah, I think so. I mean, that's that's excellent. Yeah, uh, and he makes a wholehearted attempt as that he wasn't physically cut out to be no. the front man <laughs> of anything, was he? He was a big boned chap. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, I suppose that didn't stop Fats Domino. No, but he was. No, yeah. Bill Haley. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, well, Bill Haley, I felt was always limited by <laughs> that. You know, the fact that again he looked like someone's granddad when, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, instead of he was no Elvis Presley. Let's no, put it that way. You know, no, no, no. Bill Haley's importance in rock and roll is huge, but 
he was very limited in what he could deliver because... Well, the thing with Bill Haley was it was until people knew what he looked like. Yeah, as soon as they yeah, saw yeah, him, they were like, oh. But yeah, that was Don Lang. And then we move on to Big Hair. Big Hair and a Jumper in the form of Ross Hamilton. Yeah. From the, Liverpool. From Liverpool. He's one of the first prominent uh, people of the rock and roll era to come from Liverpool. Yeah. And he had a huge hit with a single... The Both the A-side and the B-side of it were huge hits on both sides of the Atlantic. So... Mm. He had a song called We Will Make Love, which got to number two in Britain. And then owing to a, an error by his they American the record company, side. they played the flip side. It was called Rainbow, which became a huge hit in America. got to mm. number four. So he was one of the first British artists of that Amazing. era to score a big hit in America. I found him insipid. Yeah, it didn't do it for me. Yeah, he reminded me a bit of, um, not Gary Barlow, take that, Mark Owen. Mark Owen. Mark yeah, Owen. with that yeah. sort of silence interested, <laughs> deliberate... And that, says, uh, that was that for me yeah. was uh, sorry, Russ. Um, uh, yeah, I did. It didn't. But yeah, but, but obviously he was, was sorry. Right. He did write his own stuff. He which did. Is yeah, and he played and, the guitar. And played the guitar. So he wasn't insubstantial in that respect. No, no he did write and his he, own um, material. Commercially, he was ahead of Billy Fury mm. and mm. and of course the Beatles later on, who hadn't even barely even got started. Yes, I have no idea whether Russ Hamilton played any influence on the Liverpool scene. They were probably aware of him. They're probably aware of him. Um, yeah. Although success petered out quite quickly for him, he did do some recordings in Nashville. Yeah. With none other than That's Chet right. Atkins. Yeah. And the Jordanaires. The Jordanaires. So Elvis is back in singing as the Jordanaires. And, and Chet, Chet Atkins. Atkins. I so mean, that's it's the top of the... belief, doesn't it? Yeah. They and must have seen something in Russ Hamilton yeah. that I certainly didn't see. And, and it's very possible that, you know, we're talking again, Russ Hamilton would have been genuinely a young man at this point. Mm, mm. Um, I don't know what age he was, but I wouldn't put him much past 20. Mm. And... <clears throat> It may be that he was a good musician yeah. waiting to come out. He was just in this phase of writing rather bubblegum pop. Yeah. Um, and maybe he actually did have some substance behind him. If Chet Atkins has agreed to work with him, you'd have to think he had yeah. something going He must on. have done. He must have you done. Know. I mean, I can't say most, most of what I've listened to of him really set me alight, but it's not really my cup of tea again. But good on him for being yeah. a, for writing his own material and, and having success and putting mm. Liverpool on the map. But then, we move on to one of the most surprising sights. Oh wow! Wow! In the film. Oh my goodness! A, a revered gentleman who well, I don't I'm a think massive fan. Who I don't think I'll ever look at in the same way again. No. And we're talking, of course, about yeah. Mr. John Barry. Yeah, you can't unsee it. That's the problem. Yeah. So He's, John, John yes, Barry. I mean, we're n- going to limit our chat about John Barry today because I know for a fact that he will reappear. In yep. multiple occasions will, yeah. across our series. So we're not going to, today, do a big, long talk about his whole career. Which is massive. I He's a so. goliath of British film music. One of the film composers in the world. Everybody knows and respects John Barry and his body of work. Yeah. However, John Barry's body that we see gyrating around here... His, his body is not made for this job. It's not made for the rock and roll gyrations. Mm-hmm. I never thought... I mean, obviously, I knew of the John Barry set. Yeah, yeah, seven, yeah, yeah. But, um, so I knew, well, I knew that John Barry, obviously, started out in the rock and roll era and at a, a stage became involved with many prominent rock and roll artists, Adam Faith being the, probably the chief among them. Yes, yes. And I knew he'd done 
cover of the ventures walk and run. run i knew yeah. he'd done hit and miss yeah the thing with the john barry seven was the jukebox, jukebox jury thing. thing yeah so i would known all about that i knew he as a a ranger was instrumental in that sort of taking inspiration uh from buddy holly it doesn't matter anymore that yeah. record yeah. and some of the other buddy holly records yeah. with that plinky plonky raining in my heart stuff like that. yeah um so i knew he was a big mover and shaking this what i didn't realize was that he tried to move and shake his hips <laughs> at, at any stage i really had him down as a back man not a front yeah man. i i always i always assumed that john barry seven were a purely instrumental group yeah. and it was surprising yeah to see john barry himself looking like a marionette stick insect uh, <laughs> attempting to do the rock and roll hip shaking front man thing you got to trying to yeah. do some Elvisy kind of a yeah. <laughs> and every which way every yeah. which way it's just every which it's going every yeah. any which way but those of things it's it's, uh, not, it's it's uh i mean as we as we broadcast we've just had in recent memory the image of Theresa May dancing at the Conservative Party conference. <laughs> and... <laughs> what does it compare on the scale, though? I don't know. I'm not saying it's quite <laughs> that challenged. But, you know, they could be related. They could be a little bit. Little they bit. could be related. Um, there's shades of that in this. And he looks... You can tell even at the time he's up there and he's committed to doing these two songs and you could almost see it in his face and going, no, yeah. I've made a mistake. Oh, God, what am I doing? Yeah. Okay, can I get out? No, no, the cameras are rolling. Yeah. <laughs> and, because, uh, uh, well, because he was a trumpeter. Actually. He was a trumpet. Yeah, yeah. he was a trumpet player was his first yeah. instrument. And, um, and he does hold a trumpet again as a, as a crutch. Yeah, like, <laughs> as he clings onto this trumpet for dear life to try and show I do have still have yeah, yeah, some no, this is, this vestige of credibility please, left. A serious musician. Yeah, <laughs> but and it's uh, interestingly, this is the final time that John Barry sang on record. It's the the last well, vocal. As soon as you, if it was me, if I'd seen that, I'd be going right. I, I can't do that again. Yeah. It is so. It's so painfully awkward. Mm. Um, the band itself, as you would expect from a John Barry. Ensemble is good, mm. um, and the sounds not bad. You know, no. it's not a bad little rock and roll combo. And the records that the John Barry Seven made in those days, are yeah, pretty good slices Excellent. of British yeah. early rock. And a little roll. of their time, but they're they're fine. Great stuff, and a and a interesting start to his uh, career. But well, his career definitely blossomed uh, following that. Mm. Well, he started doing scores, for, and I'm sure we'll come to the movie itself. But I think wasn't it Beat Girl? Yeah, uh, with start Adam Faith. Yeah, and he, him being Adam Faith's uh, musical arranger it was actually the work was... on some of those early uh, things like Mix Me a Person, Adam mm. Faith, and uh, Beat Girl and stuff that yeah. brought him to the attention of the Bond. Yeah, uh, producers. Yeah, the Broccoli Saltzman. Yeah, it brought him to their attention on the success of some of those early films mm. and his soundtracks that which had that already i think they could see this is a very now sound that mm. he's got mm. and again we're not going to go too far into this but john barry's scoring his sound palette the way he, he constructed and voiced his chords yeah really defined so much of the 60s sound gosh yeah. i mean he was yeah. so important yeah i mean he, in yeah. everything that is british music in the yeah. 1960s and it was a, it was a, a fresh, giant it was a fresh exciting dramatic sound that yeah. he came up with oh gorgeous yeah I mean, so cool as well yeah i mean musically he was as cool 
as he was uncool in front of the camera <laughs> in this thing. Yeah, as he a, was the yeah. polar opposite. But obviously, a, a British figure in British uh, yeah. in British film music. So I don't know if it's um, worth bringing it up now, but uh, uh, around about this point in the movie, we glimpse for the first time uh, Freddie Mills, the sight of Freddie Mills, who was the sort of co-presenter of the show with yeah. Joe Douglas and yeah. Pete Murray at this point. And um, he's a very interesting and, and curious figure in, in uh, British social history and culture. He had been the world light heavyweight champion mm. in 1948. He won the title in boxing. This is, he won the title against uh, Gus Lesnovich from the US. Uh, so shortly after the war, and he'd been a, a, a well-known boxer and he won the world light heavyweight title. And from that point on, uh, became one of our most popular figures in sport and in yeah, wider culture. Henry Cooper, yeah, he was all, Frank Bruno of his Frank day. Frank Bruno of his day, yeah. yeah. He was sort of a gentle giant because he was yeah. a likeable, cheerful fellow. And he was As very, for both of those two, yeah. yeah Henry yeah, Cooper absolutely. and Frank Bruno, yeah. And so he moved from boxing, when his boxing career sort of ended, mm. he moved full on into the entertainment yeah. sphere. And he turned up, he, he had roles in various films. Yeah, Usually as a boxer him. or pugilist. Yeah, a tough he's guy. In, yeah, and he's usually... Um, He's in a film called Emergency Call with Sid James. Yeah, 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 yeah. And also, he worked uh, on a couple of carry-ons and more carry-on. Yeah, uh, thing. he was in Constable. Yeah, and he's in Regardless. Yeah, yeah we, again with Sid James, he shows yeah. up. With and him. the Norman Hudis film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so that era, and so, and he was on lots of chat shows and variety shows and mm. everything like that. He's a well-liked, very well-liked figure, and uh, and obviously he's part of the part of the um, Six Part Special Team, but he. Died in rather grisly and mysterious circumstances in 1965. I think I heard about that. Yeah, yeah it, he um, he moved into owning a restaurant come nightclub in Soho in the mid 60s when Soho was basically the Wild West, mm. and he'd been having money trouble, and his entertainment career had sort of peaked, and uh, and he yeah. wasn't working as much, and the club that he owned was struggling, and he was discovered in his car, um, in in a alleyway around the back of the of his club, dead with a in the back seat with a bullet wound through the head. And it was uh dismissed as suicide at the time, because he was known to have periods of depression as well. Well despite the fact his public persona was quite a cheerful yeah, yeah. sort of chap. He had he was very prone to, to depression. Um but there's been a lot of rumours that there was the mob involved and that mm. it was a murder um, and that he'd rubbed the wrong people up the wrong way and various lurid rumours have circulated mm. but uh, I, I'd not heard of him before but I know the face very very much yeah because yeah. a very distinctive looking face yeah yeah um, but there was a recent BBC documentary about him some months ago right at the time of recording that, that's well worth a watch if it ever uh, comes on it's well worth a watch and appears to provide some answers as to what Really, happened, what actually happened? Yeah, it sounds dodgy, doesn't but, it? Yeah, but you see him a couple of times in the film. About about fifty two minutes in, he barges through while John Barry's playing, and a isn't bit... he in a sort of commissioner role? Yeah, he's yeah, in a commissioner's yeah. uniform. And then later on, I think during the Dickie Valentine sequence, yeah. about one hour seven. Yes, in, that's right. Uh, he's 
he's there, part of the lighting team, with a very small light and chewing on a matchstick or something. So he's there, and uh, he was a popular member of the Just to of raise the team. a chuckle, really. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And basically, and, and at the time, because if you didn't know who he was, you probably wouldn't even notice it or wonder what was going on. But to audiences at the time, I mean, there's Freddie Mills. Yeah, 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 it would have yeah. been, oh, Freddie Mills, you know. Good old Freddie yeah. Mills. And also giving him the, because uh, I've seen footage of him on the show, and he's stumbling over his lines and things. Mm. And um, I think they sort of, We've got to feature him, but let's give him as little to do as we can, you know. Yeah. But um, but yeah, he he was there, and like I say, um, yeah, uh, an unusual part of the British story of the sixties. Mm. So we've then got we've got uh, yeah. the dance sequence. Oh, Ooh. the dancers, yes. Yeah. So I know the dance. One of the dancers featured where I've seen him before was in the Good Companions, which was one of yes. David Jacobs' favourite uh, oh. movies. And it was yeah. Paddy Stone, Paddy Stone and yeah. Lee Madison, yeah, and they Paddy dance Stone. in a piece called Ice Blue on this. Yes, which was written by by Jeff Love, who yeah. and we forgot to mention yeah. him earlier. Jeff Love was the film's uh, musical Music director, coordinator, yeah, and he was uh, a very popular figure and very prolific and popular figure on all sorts of programs mm. um, on the television. And uh, actually, uh, he was also, I mean, to have a, a musician of colour. Uh, 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 as a prominent figure in uh, on British telly at the time mm. was something, and he, and he was the king of le- uh, easy listening in the decades he was, to come, wasn't he? And he loved loving his, his orchestra. orchestra. But you know, the very first—it's got a personal thing for me, right? Okay. The very first album that I bought yes. with my own—well, it would have been a record token with my own record mm. token—and um, I still have it. I'll I'll put a picture up uh, if we go. Is Jeff Love's big Bond movie themes. Whoa. So Jeff Love and his orchestra reinterpreting the yeah. the, the the mostly John Barry Bond canon. Yeah, but yeah. it's also got interesting things like um, Casino Royale, the the oh, yes. yeah, David yeah, yeah, from, yeah, yeah. The, from the film wasn't part of the canon. Um, yeah, so my first ever album, and I, I've wow. got it. I think I bought it from a branch of Boots of all places of in Guildford. Boots, they, yeah, Boots. Not, actually sold not Woolworths. No, I'm sure it was Boots. I'll have to, I think I've still got the label on it, so I'll, right. I'll, I'll dig it out and have a look, and I'll put a post, uh, a picture of it up on the <laughs> Facebook page or that, something. Yeah. So uh, that's um, great. So yeah, so it means something to me, Jeff Love. Only in as much as my first ever album that I bought. Was it any good? It is actually. It's a nice oh, album. It's a good album. Well played. And yeah, um, yeah it's all right. Yeah. yeah. Um, so then we go on from the dancing, which is a, a good dancing. Yeah, it's, 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 it's a um, Hollywood-style oh, yeah. dance around a bar. Yeah, a bit out of Mark Ken, but it's, yeah. it does... Uh, again, this film would be none the worse for it not being there. Yeah. And it doesn't do any high. It's mercifully short. Yeah. And there is absolutely nothing wrong with it. It's just when you're watching what should be a rock and roll movie... Yeah. A and couple got of dancers of dancing, dancing over yeah. an easy listening soft shoe shuffle. Yeah. Is isn't really what you've subscribed for, no. I'd say. Um, I I'm happy enough with any soft shoe shuffle. I'm partial yeah. to them myself, but yeah. I wasn't looking for it. No, no. Well, talking of things uh, you might not have signed up for, we're now greeted with the Tartan Trude sight. Oh my! Of young God. Jackie Dennis. Oh, la di da, la di da. Oh no! This is one of the lowest points <laughs> in the whole movie. <laughs> You don't like teenage uh, sportsmen. Oh, it was oh, so painful, oh, the whole still... thing. So this kid, who must be, what age is 15. he at this point? Is he 15? Yeah. He looks about 10 or 11. He no, looks he was 12. 15 no. years old. I, I knew he was older old. than he looks. Yeah. But, but it's an excruciating number full of the worst kind of pop lyrics. Yeah, it's sort of bubble gut. It's not even... Oh, it's not even... It's, it doesn't even It's pop. written, of course, for someone who... They can't write anything with any sexual 
no overtones for and who but they still won't don't want to write uh, how much is that doggy in the window kind yeah. of lyric and so they're stuck between those two lyrics and end up with one that's worse than either of them yeah it's just sort of nonsense it's just awful and he had a big hit with it yeah number four number four it's his biggest hit yeah his whole career got to number four in the yeah. charts yeah and he yeah i mean the the success didn't last very long thank god um his only other further hit was Purple People Eater, a version of that, yeah. which got to number 29. But and he's dressed in tartan yeah. trousers and that, big... Yeah. It's all cod sky. I yeah. mean, it's... That was his gift. Well, he's sort of... I guess he's enough get, I guess just he, to be Scottish yeah, without well, having to sell yourself purely he, I guess he seems to be modelling himself on Andy Stewart a bit, doesn't he, I guess. Yeah, maybe. I presume, Andy Stewart being a star by now. Yeah. yeah so he, he seems to be like a pint-sized Andy Stewart thing. But he... And, he, and I guess if he had his sights set on America, because he did appear in America mm. on the Perry Como show. Yeah. As Builders Britain's Ricky Nelson. Oh, God. Which he Poor wasn't. Ricky Nelson. Poor Ricky Nelson of that association. But yeah, he, um, but he did all right. He, he toured with the John Barry Seven, but the success obviously didn't last long. And he left showbiz and he ended up, became, he became a nursing home carer. Got a job doing that. All right, fair enough. And yeah, I'm, he's still with us. He's still that. with That's us. Um, it was awful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, don't hold back. If you, if you, if you, if you, if you, let me know what you think. <laughs> so, oh, especially so, the lardy dar bit yeah. of the lyric. Honestly, yeah, yeah, really, really, really hard. So do. anyway, uh, Jackie Dennis does his thing, and then we got the King Brothers. Sorry, we got the King Brothers. Um, <laughs> who uh, I've got down on my notes as Prep Skiffle meets Kingston Trio. Yeah, I would say that's about right. And the first song they sing is Hand Me Down My Walking Cane, which was an old work song, yeah. you know, 1880s. Yes, written, yes. Which is, again, one of this uh, passed down American folk stroke blues. Yes. Which is what the Skiffle thing was. Which is exactly what Skiffle was. And, I mean, Skiffle was so important in this time because it it starts the British Revolution, the British mm. music revolution that really took grip in the 1960s all starts with skiffle yeah um it was the time when for the first time people realized that you didn't have to be a trained musician to no. make music if you just picked up a shonky guitar and a washboard something and a teacher's and something, to and something to clang yeah. then you could make music and of course although 90 percent of the music that the skiffle bands made was awful <laughs> And even some of the best of it. So even, we spoke earlier of the Vipers. Yeah. Even a lot of the Vipers stuff, who were one of the mm. foremost yeah. and most successful Skibble Van, some yeah. of their stuff's pretty ordinary. Mm. But um, from those little, small acorns, we get the Beatles. Yeah. And from, and many others. Yeah. And, and the, well, before that, we get the Shadows and Cliff. Cliff yeah. started out they, as They all started off in Skiffle. They all started out all in the of two them. eyes. Just um, about everybody who worked in the British music industry in the, the, well, the next following 10 years. years, 15 years, all started in well, a Skiffle group. Well, as Billy Bragg pointed out in his um, excellent book on Skiffle, that yeah. he wrote, which is well worth a read if, you've, if, you've, it really if is, you haven't yeah. seen it. It's, it's brilliant. Well, it's literally the punk generation was the first that hadn't, in some way, come up through Skiffle or being yeah. directly influenced by it, and in a way, punk was a rebirth. Was, of was a rebirth of Skiffle, in as much as it was DIY music. You, didn't, yep. you just needed three chords, and uh, yeah, and it was a reaction it. to the very, very hyper sophisticated music that was yes. fully orchestrated or yeah. reading or, musician. Oh, sorry, in the first instance, yeah, and yeah, in yeah, the yeah. second one, it's the highly 
complex prog music. Yeah. And, and there was a lot of soft rock as well yeah. and smooth pop and there was, there yeah. was a lot of things uh, uh, around. It was all very was sophisticated yeah. and, and the, like the Skiffle guys, the punks just threw that yeah. out the window yeah. with basics. So they kind of re- recreated uh, yeah. Skiffle in their own image in, in effect. But, um, but the thing about the King Brothers is it's kind of faux Skiffle. Yeah. Because they've been going for uh, since 52. They went... They, they, so there's some people refer to them as Britain's first boy band. They they turned professional in 1952, when they were all in their early to mid teens, yeah. and it was Mike, Tony, and Dennis were the were the three King brothers. Mm. Their main leg up was that Max Bygrove's wife had spotted them, oh, and encouraged young him, man, oh young man, and encouraged him to uh, uh, him to put them on his yeah his show, and it all escalated from there. And they were on the very first ever edition of Six Fast Special, as I think we said earlier, yeah. were the closest thing to rock and roll on the very first edition of yeah. Six Fast Special, uh, which says something about the, the yeah, music they, they, they would have sing, had on it. So they sing Hammy Down and Walk Again, they sing the Six Five Jive, yeah. and it, it's, it, it is, again, one of the closest areas to rock and roll that happens on this programme, but it's very jivey. Yeah, yeah well, Six Five was written by uh, Jeff Love. Right. Six Five Jive. And um, so it's not it's not rock and roll really at its heart, and it's not genuine rock. And no, roll. it's all a bit faux, faux skiffle, it's faux rock and roll. Faux it's, rock and roll uh, it's, yeah. um, but they did have a couple of they'd had a couple of hits the previous year. Mm. Their biggest hit had happened the year before in June 1957, which was a version of a white sports coat. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And it came out the same month as Terry Dean's version. And there's Trout's Terry Dean's. There's got to number six, and he's got to number eighteen. So, um, and it was Terry Dean's biggest hit. Yeah. Um, so they did really well off that. And they, they actually sustained their career pretty well up to 61. So at the rise of Cliff as a pop star and then the Beatles round the corner and they yeah, couldn't yeah, cope and they with couldn't any of that. Sustain with that. Um, and also still, they, were, they were growing up a bit. And I they, bet they still made a decent living on the nightclub circuit yeah. and all sort of stuff like that if they if they'd continued. Yeah, I believe they did. Well, they were an accomplished act, if yeah, nothing else. Yeah. And Dennis King who's the guy you see playing the piano at one point, mm-hmm. he went and retrained, I think, the Guildhall College of Music right. at the end of the 60s and became, an, well, and is still a prominent TV and film composer right. and, and stage composer. Yeah. And he did the theme tune to Black Beauty. Oh. The TV, yeah, the events of Black Beauty. Yeah, and Lovejoy. He wrote the theme tune to Lovejoy, the TV series there. And lots of stage, lots of... Particularly TV, done a lot of TV work, and he's still working. Dennis King, he's still a prolific composer, right? Okay, so he's still going. Um, but then hang on to your hearts, girls. Well, yeah, then we, we've got Dickie Valentine. Yep, so the entrance of Dickie Valentine. So, Dickie Valentine, uh, was a well established star at this point as well. Yes, uh, Dickie Valentine was a crooner, yeah, and he is, if you like, the antidote to rock and roll, mm. really. Um, he came to prominence in the early 50s. Yeah. He'd had a spell with Ted Heath's band. Yeah. That's, that's the band leader, not the, the politician. Yeah, the, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, where he was singing with uh, Lita Rosa. How okay. much is that doggy in the window? Oh, right, that sort of thing. Uh, and Dennis Lotus, who was yeah. his predecessor, really, yeah. in terms of the British, the top British crooner, crooner vocalist, was Dennis Lotus. So he, he comes in the early 50s, and by 1954 he's gone solo. Mm. And then he starts to have a string of of hits, including two number ones. Yeah. Finger of Suspicion is the That's song right. he's most... Uh, the Finger of Suspicion points to you is the song he's most known for. And he also had the accolade of having the first ever Christmas 
specifically written Christmas number one. Yeah, the Christmas alphabet. The Christmas alphabet, yeah. yeah. So uh, he really learned his trade, worked hard at his trade, and you can see that in, in the performance he gives here mm. in terms of his confidence, his panache, yeah. his stagecraft. He's quite a long way ahead of yeah. most of the other performers, yeah, if absolutely. not all the other performers, absolutely. that we see on there and a world away from the awkward figure of John Barry. Yeah, this is a guy absolutely. who yeah. has clearly yeah, yeah, worked yeah. to clubs, worked audiences. He did comedy as well in his show. Yes, so he, he was did. A, he I've was seen him do stuff with Arthur Haynes. And he was an active uh, comedian. Yeah. So he was, as most of those sort of old school entertainers were, whether you were a com comic or a singer, they tended to do a bit of both. The comedians mm. sung a bit. The, the yeah. singers did a well, bit of comedy. That's how Jim Dale got into his yeah. pop career because, because he used to finish his act yeah. off with a, a song. A song. And, he used to, and he used to drive the kids you know, yeah. wild. And it was really and that's how they, they, they really were all-round entertainers. They they moved a bit, so they, they had a few dance steps that yeah. they could offer. And he really does dance well, doesn't he? He dances right? well and with good... good And so he does The King of Dixieland, which is yep. exactly as it sounds, an old high-kicking yeah. uh, show tune, which for some reason he sings twice. Yeah, I'm not quite sure what that's about. I no. mean, the film doesn't need to be any longer no. than it is, does it? No. So. And we got it. And the, the the thing was, the second verse really was the same as the first. Yeah. yeah. So it was it just doesn't, dwell, it doesn't build on it, does it? It's not. That because he was a bigger star than most of the people on the bill, it was kind of felt yeah. we'll, we'll double up on that thing because it's all short iteration the one time through. Mm. And then he sings a a ballad which is a real old school stodgy ballad. Yeah. Really, isn't yeah. it? And that's where we see. Um, Diane Todd, Diane Todd again. A little bit at the a background. I, I mean, I don't mind stuff like the finger of suspicion. I think's kind of cute, but the the ballad he sings, it, it, yeah. Again, it's from another planet. It's from another. Usually. It's from another era. Uh, he's a great singer. I mean, he's yeah. got the chops. He puts the song across really well. Great performer. It's of a style that is at direct contrast, and in a way, it's quite interesting that. He's there. It's the changing of the guard, and, mm, and he's mm. very much that. He's very much that that, even though he's, he was only twenty-eight. Yeah, again, he was only twenty-eight. Well, he's he doesn't look old in it, no. but he's been in the business for a while, and because of the style he's singing, you automatically assume he's yeah. older. But he's, he's no. Not. I thought he's in his thirties by this point. He's not yeah. twenty-eight. Well, he went on to be very. I mean, he's, his success did continue for quite yeah, a while well, through the sixties. Uh, he was still on telly. He was fronting his yeah. own shows on the telly. He topped the bill at the London Palladium. Yeah. Um, yeah. He, so, he was very, very popular in the mid-50s and then carried on, although his star as a recording artist waned, he yeah. couldn't compete in the in the rock and roll era no. against those guys. So, and, and by the time the Beatles had come, he was yeah. long passé. But he carried on a very, very successful uh, entertaining career yeah. on the live yeah. circuit. Yeah, he was doing that. He was playing, playing you know, decent venues and yeah. large clubs and... And he was fronting his own series. He had the Dickie Valentine show. Yep. 66-67. So the Beatles are heading yeah, off yeah. into uncharted psychedelic territories. And Dickie's with his Dickie, Dickie Dickie's, there, Dickie's there bowed up. And, yeah. uh, and he's and yeah, got his own show. But again, successful thing. Yeah, very successful. Came and, to a tragic end. Yeah, and he probably would have carried on as a successful artist, except that he died in a, in a silly car accident. Yeah, in, I mean, I Wales. suspect that actually... His style would have suited that mid seventies revival. Yeah. So if you think that entertainers like Bruce Forsyth and yeah. that his his kind were doing really well by the mid seventies, yeah. performing 
primetime television. And I yeah. think that Dickie Valentine could have probably, probably could have done. a could really been... good career in, as a variety show. Yeah. He could guy. have been Mr. Saturday Night, couldn't yeah, he? Yeah, he really could have. Been, he, could he had have the personality. Yeah. He had the all-round game. Yeah. And I think he would have done. But, of course, yeah, he... he but yes, sadly, uh, sadly died in a in a tragic accident at the age of forty one. Yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. But, so we'll never know what what, yeah, what I it could have been. Okay, I but think it is I think he would have. I think he was the sort of guy who would have who would have had a comeback to his. I, I think he would have found his feet. I mean, obviously, during the late sixties, anything like that is terribly out of vogue. But in the in yeah. the mid seventies, again, it finds that kind of entertainment really yeah. finds its feet again. Yeah, and I think Dickie Valentine, what he would have been in his mid. Mid-40s. Mid-40s then, perfect age yeah. to, to be, Mr. as you say, Mr. Saturday Night. Yeah. yeah. And now it's time for the King of Skiffle, Lonnie Donegan. Yes, finale, finally got to the end yeah. of the yeah. track. And um, and we get, we've got two tracks from, mm. from Lonnie Donegan. The, the King of Skiffle. The King of Skiffle, the yeah. actual undisputed yeah. King of Skiffle. Yeah. And a huge star. Yeah, of, the um, personification, I think, of Skiffle. Yeah. Um, and the star that transcended it, and really also, as much as he is maligned in some quarters, the guy who deserved the plaudits for setting the skiffle flame alight in yeah. the UK. I think his reputation has been reassessed heavily mm. in more recent years, because he was the first one to to bring skiffle to prominence. Mm. Skiffle had been a thing um, that had happened in trad jazz bands. It had been a mm. segment where... This is a story that's been told a lot, but trad jazz bands in Britain used to used to play extremely hard, mostly brass instruments, and yeah, they would play hard, extremely yeah. <laughs> hard, which would be tiring. So after half yeah. an hour, they couldn't play. And your embrasure, your embrasure would go numb, mm. which is it's, oh, it's not, not you don't want that. Oh no, my embrasure, it's gone right off. And so to have a little bit of a rest, they'd have an mm. interval where they'd pick up uh, some guitars and some percussion instruments, whatever they had. And play some old folk and blues songs. I think it was partly born out of uh, Ken Collier's band. Yeah, uh, his when he'd come back from yeah. uh, the, from yeah. New Orleans. Ken Collier, he was a real jazz, uh, massive jazz enthusiast uh, and protoliser. Well, he was a jazz purist. Yeah, um, and a curator of original early New Orleans jazz. He felt even yeah. that Louis Armstrong betrayed yeah. jazz when he went to that's Chicago. How, I mean, that's how pure That's how he hardcore was. he was. Yeah. And he, like a lot of people, didn't like where jazz had gone, the big swing bands and everything like that, no. in the, um, and the Glenn Millery sort of sounds yeah, yeah. Of, of the late 40s. He, he didn't like arranged pieces anyway. No. The core for jazz was players improvising together. Yeah. In a, in, in a group but over each other so he didn't yeah. like big solo phrases no. with the other band sitting back and the, you know that was it. anyway there's a bit of detail perhaps more than we need but Ken Collier's band he'd, with, he'd gone to New Orleans he jumped, he mm. joined the Merchant Navy jumped ship in New Orleans um, met and played with uh, either some of his jazz heroes or mm. some of the disciples of his jazz yeah. heroes uh, all of whom were black and he was a white English kid playing with these musicians Incurred the ire of uh, the authorities. Was good enough to, for them to accept. Yeah, was good enough for them to accept as well, which is something. And anyway, he was deported. When he arrived back, his friends had formed a band ready for him to do, which included Chris Barber, Chris Barber on, on trombone and Lonnie Donegan mm. on guitar and banjo. Yeah. But the critical thing was they had the versatility there for Chris Barber to switch to bass. Yes, that's right. Ken Collier to switch to guitar. guitar. And so Donegan to pick and up a guitar as Donegan well. Donegan to go from banjo to guitar. Yeah. Um, and step and, up front and, start and between the three of them, mm. they then had what turned out to be a skip. They they didn't intend it to be. It was interval music. Yeah, and they do repertoire mainly from Lead Belly. Yeah, 
and yeah. and the a like. Bit of Woody Guthrie, perhaps, yeah. and uh, and yeah, just to fill the time. Yeah. So they're basically playing sort of blues and folk songs from America. Wasn't it Collier's brother Bill? Yeah, it's Bill it? Collier, who was who was the manager of mm. uh, of the band, named it Skiffle. Um, mm. I think to avoid saying it's white boys playing the blues. Yeah, they didn't want to say they were a blues band because they felt that, that as whites they couldn't. Yeah, be could, taken seriously doing yeah. that. So they called it Skiffle instead, uh, which is a, that's a whole other story of yeah, how no, that name came. Anyway, but Chris Barber and the other musicians, including Donegan, split from Collier. Yeah, his exacting were, rule. Yeah. yeah, his exacting rule. They went off on their own, and on their first album, they do a couple of Skiffle songs. Mm. One of which was Rock Island Line, fronted mm. by. Uh, Donegan with Chris Barber on bass and then that I think about 18 months after it was recorded it was quite a long yeah. time it's yeah. released as a single and becomes a massive hit yeah. it's just the time is right yeah. for that song and that sound and it was fresh and it was raw and exciting compared to a lot of the stuff and we're seeing this sort of stayed world yeah. even a couple of years later we're seeing the stayed world yeah. of um of British pop at the it time. Takes, it takes a long time. When when people talk about the, the rock and roll era and Elvis and, and Bill Haley mm. and all these things hitting, it's always talked about like it, it was a seismic yeah. point yeah. and then was, everything changed immediately. Yeah. And of course the reality, yeah. like it's all these things, earth, is it didn't. It? Yeah, and it wasn't. It's, it's it like didn't. people say about punk changing everything. No, it didn't. The, the, yeah. the biggest bands were still the Eagles. It was still yeah, Abba. It still it carried still, on. Yeah. It's just there was enough of a ripple... So one of these ripples was this skiffle music yeah. coming out. And I think the reason why we, we talked about Lonnie Donegan and said he did deserve and been reassessed, mm. where he really deserves credits mm. is his vocal style yes. was so different to anybody else. And he mm. wasn't trying to be a rock and roller. No. He wasn't trying to sing like Elvis or any of those guys. He really did develop a unique vocal style. Yeah. And the passion of his vocal style yeah. and the abandon with which he yeah. sung it's was unlike raising. anything and else. You really see that on... Um, he does two numbers here. Grand Coulee Dam, which is a bit more stayed. Yeah, as a Woody Guthrie number. But he finishes off um, with Jack of Diamonds. Oh, yeah. And where he, from where he starts to where he ends, yeah. it's so exciting. The way he just yeah. ratchets his voice up verse yeah. by verse by verse. Yeah. And it's by the end of it, it's really yeah. it's thrilling stuff. It's the best it's moment stuff. in the movie. Yeah. Uh, by a, a comfortable margin. In terms of the musical excitement, we've talked about the accomplishment, say, of Johnny Dankworth, of Cleo Lane yeah. and everything. That's the best musical quality, yeah. perhaps. Well, almost... Uh, the guys in Lonnie's band are doing a great job. Uh, there's yeah. some. There's one of the only moments in the movie where I think the actual footage is good. Yeah. So they have an angle on Lonnie <clears throat> from the side, which gets him and his lead guitarist yeah. in the shot, and his drummer just on there... The yeah. slightly odd-looking bass player so, they've somehow so, cut out. Of the you know, shot. I, I wonder what they've done about that. <laughs> so they've got this great shot, and they're all there in their in their tuxes, quite yeah. sharp tuxes. Yeah. And then their earthy instruments playing really earthy music. Great yeah. lines from the lead guitarist. Yeah. And Excellent. then Lonnie, which was his trademark, was speeding up, speeding up, speeding up. More excitement, and his voice going from. Yeah. E calm but edgy yeah. up to frantic yeah. right towards the end and the, as I say Grand Coulee Dam is fine yeah, and he puts it across well and it's it's fine but Jack, Jack of, of Diamonds, Diamonds is the moment where you think ah yeah. that's what this is that's about. why yeah and that's why all yeah. the kids got excited 
and it finishes on that. Funny enough, they score the end of it with a bit of orchestration, yeah. don't they? <laughs> yes. the, the, the band comes in at the end with all the brass. Da, 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 you know, but the damage is already done by then. They can't sanitise what, they get, what no, just happened. No, because it's already raw yeah. and exciting. And yeah. it's easily the best moment in the movie. I think so, yeah. I just wish it was just filmed a little bit better because the camera pulls out and you th- and it pulls out and it pulls out and then just sort of stops and, and yeah. you're left on this long shot of him. Yeah. And you're, I want to be in there. Yeah. They I get it right for that sort of 35 seconds yeah. at the beginning of Jack of Diamonds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, as you say, they draw to this big long shot probably just to show the scale of yeah. what they're doing, but it yeah. is a poor shot. Yeah. And it's one of, you know, many... Odd decision. Yeah, well, it's probably why Alfred Shaughnessy decided to concentrate on writing yeah, and didn't, yeah. didn't carry on with, yeah. the, with the film directing. But, but it's a great moment yeah. um, from Lonnie Donegan and the film leaves on its high. Yeah. And I'm glad they don't try and follow it off with any dramatic no. bits or anything like that, anything with Diane Todd or no, anything. No, they it's, finished it's, off the storyline there that they realise that the, the music yeah. is, the, is the key. And frankly, I think the, um, the Lonnie Donegan sequence at the end is worth it's, it makes the film worth it. Yeah, that's that. That's the reason this film is here. Yeah, it's yeah. to preserve Lonnie Donegan in his absolute prime and peak. Yeah, and uh, now it's fantastic. And of course, Lonnie went on to have a fabulous career. He did. It's a shame that he um, he did start doing those. Although they're very entertaining, the more normal oh, my old man's a dustman, dustman and, and, and chewing gum, gum losing yeah. paper, that sort of stuff. Um, and World Cup Willie. And World Cup. Don't forget World Cup, World Cup Willie. Our, our 1966 blue. World Cup theme. He ended up sadly getting subsumed musically by the people yeah. that he'd inspired. So a few years later, the people yeah. like the Beatles, who were directly inspired by his music, yeah. Um, I I, I honestly don't think he could have tra- he could have moved into that no. sort of. So he I wasn't going to. He, do... he had the. He wasn't a songwriter. No. Um, so he his his repertoire for the 1950s was all from those American artists that were being unearthed and he would plunder all the other best skiffle bands repertoire as well wouldn't he so if he heard a good song being sung by you know one of the top rivals he'd get it and record it it and release it before they did did he do don't you want me daddy yeah 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 yeah. Yeah. because he'd heard the vipers as well that's right i don't think he i don't think he undermined them on that particular score but i i think he did with one or two others where he heard a big song being sung by somebody did it yeah. and of course because he was Lonnie Donegan he could get his record out and pressed and in, yeah. and in the public eye but long before they could well, there's a there's that great um uh Peter Sellers sketch oh, yes. where he's interviewing Lenny Goonigan yeah <laughs> and he's saying well this is this rare little funk number I found hiding at the top of the American hit parade yeah. <laughs> and um, <laughs> but we, we mustn't undermine uh, because he because he's a, a, a great um Really important, a really figure. important figure in in um, British popular. He's music. been sadly underrated for a, a good many years, but I he, think because of Mild Man's a Dustman yeah. and that sort of thing. Well, I'm glad I I, I actually saw him um, mm-hmm. shortly before he died. He'd done a he made a comeback album. He hadn't made an album for about twenty years, mm. and he made a rather good album called Mule Skinner Blues that has contributions to people like Van Morrison and yeah. Albert Lee and various people. Oh, oh and um, yeah. uh, the Sarstip Brothers, ah. Peter and uh, Peter Sarstip and Eden Kane, his brother. They're both on it, and. Okay. Um, and yeah, it's an interesting lineup, and that's a good album. It's a decent yeah. album. It's got the black and white moody cover. I think it was just after Johnny Cash oh, did yeah, his yeah. Um, uh, did his American recordings, and right. I think Lonnie obviously thought I'll have a bit of that, yeah, and yeah. Um, sort of with the sort of moody cover and everything. But it is a good album, mm. and he went on tour, and I saw him at the Trowbridge 
folk festival. Oh, great. Um, and it was quite funny, actually, because he came on stage and he said, um, and having just done this new album, he came on and he said, you know, I was wondering on my way here um, whether to do uh, the uh, old songs or the new songs. And uh, walking through the crowd uh, on the way to the stage, I thought, yeah, there better be bloody old songs. <laughs> 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 and uh, and he played a great. I wish I remembered yeah. it more. I wish I remembered it more vividly. I didn't know he was going to die in a, yeah, 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 in a year or two. And um, but I'm pleased. I did see him, and I'm pleased I saw him. Yeah, no, I'm that was great. Yeah, nice. Yeah. Um. So that's that, really. Um, yeah. I mean that that brings that the film to an end. Yeah. Uh, anything else? Any sort of note bene? There's um a few sights in amongst the extras. Oh yes, um, there is. Well, um, we spotted Angela Douglas. Angela, a young yeah. Angela Douglas before yep. she was famous um and she of course had a, a a good career in the in the 60s particularly again in carry on yeah largely um but with jim with, dale with jim she dale, was jim yeah. dale's love interest in carry on cowboy yep. and in carry on screaming yes and uh she's in kyber as well isn't she Plays she is in kyber but yeah before she was famous she has an uncredited role here you see her a couple of times about an hour in yeah you see her and she's wearing she's like really a, young she yeah and she's wearing a vertical striped uh blouse or top thing okay that's her there oh and also we'll be coming to angela douglas in a couple of episodes time when we do some people yeah which is her breakout yeah. movie uh, very interesting film. interesting movie and, and important for her as well in a personal yeah, life yeah, yeah. which we but we'll cover all that keep the, the powder dry lad and keep the powder dry and um but all and also somewhere amongst there and i don't quite know what she looks off the top of my head but grazina frame is in there Right. Who we're used to hearing but not seeing, and yeah. somewhere in there we can see her but not hear her. So yeah, Angela Douglas and Grazina Frame among the among the extras wow. there. But I think we've talked on more than long enough about Possibly. about this movie. Um, it's I it's a fun movie. It's a good if you want a snapshot, literally in aspic of what British pop music was basically like. The mess British pop music yeah. was in. Um, in nineteen early nineteen fifty eight, I think the other thing is we, when we were giving our brief for this, we did mm. say were the films when we were looking at the films, we'd assess whether they were a genuine attempt to make good movies for young people or whether they were a slightly mm. uh, cynical attempt. I think this one does fall somewhere in between. Yeah, I think there are elements of it which are genuine, but I do think that. The person at the helm, at the very least, you can say is they don't really understand youth as a, culture as a filmmaker. You mean? As a filmmaker, Jack Good certainly did. Yeah, Jack Good did as, the, as a TV oh, producer. Oh, oh, he yeah, but he wasn't at, in control of this. And he movie. was being ousted. Yeah, he, he was, was in not the in control of, being of this movie. He was in the process. Of being I think ousted. if he had been in control of this movie, it would have been a completely different movie. And I don't yes. think you'd have had some of those other elements in it. It would have been rock and roll, rock and roll, rock and roll, yeah. or related stuff. I don't think you'd have had. Half of the acts that we've talked about, they no. just wouldn't have been there. And I don't think you'd even have had so much of a kooky storyline to it. No. Uh, no. Maybe I'm wrong. But, yeah, it, I, I don't think it's altogether cynical. No. But they've certainly not quite got it. It does represent 6-5 Special in that respect. Yeah. It represents the TV series. 6-5 Special was half as good as Oh Boy yeah. that followed it. This isn't quite there yet as a yeah. piece having said that if you're into this and if you're still listening to this you you're a devotee mm. so do watch it it's well worth the watch yeah. um i enjoyed it although it is not a great film no there's some valuable performances it's certainly a uh you could yeah. crank it out crank it out and get it out as quickly as we can we've already mentioned 
there are a number of performances and sequences in here which you could cut. Yeah. Okay. So that wraps it up for 1958 and the 65 special. Mm-hmm. We will be moving into the 60s for yes. our first double bill. Matt, Ooh, what have we got for the double bill? We have three? got a double bill of crime-based pop films. Crime capers. Crime capers. Starting mm. off with 1962's Band of Thieves featuring Mr. Ackerbilk. And his Paramount Jazz Band. And his Paramount Jazz Band. Paramount among them. Yep. And uh, followed by 1965's Dateline Diamonds which features the small faces among uh, a number of other turns. Yep. So join us next time for that. Yep. Uh, and in the meantime I've been Matt Bragg. And I'm still Gavin Lazarus. And join us for another edition of Brit Pop Movies of a Certain Age. Jack a diamond Jack a diamond Jack a diamond's all got a You play the game of life, you got trouble, you got strife. Jack of Diamonds is a hard card to find. Life is like a game of cards, but it's very, very hard. Jack of Diamonds is a hard card to find. Jack of Diamonds, Jack of Diamonds, Diamonds is a hard card to find. Jack of Diamonds, Jack of Diamonds, Diamonds is a hard my heart like a money made us part. Jack of Diamonds is a hard card to find. She said life is just a bet, but I never want it yet. Jack of Diamonds is a hard card to find. Jack of Diamonds, Jack of Diamonds, Diamonds is a hard card to find. Jack of Diamonds, Jack of
Well, I believe because he because he'd already started his um, um, solo career. Because I believe, sorry, I shouldn't read it. <laughs> it's the wrong time to have a snack, folks. Um, Couldn't resist it. <laughs> so delicious. 